Before we get started with today's show, I want to tell you guys about betonline.ag. It's conference championship week in college football. We're headed into the last month of pro football. Basketball and hockey are in full swing, and BetOnline has you covered with all of the props, odds, promos, and parlays during the sports calendar. Use our promo code BLEAV, that's B-L-E-A-V, to get a 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. BetOnline, where the game starts. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, or good night. However, and whenever it is, you may be listening. Thank you for stopping into another fantabulous episode of the Take It Easy podcast live on the Believe Podcast Network. Except it isn't live because it is, as always, a podcast. Welcome, 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 everybody. It is Tuesday, November 29th, according to my count. It may not be that according to your count. We appreciate you stopping in, however and whenever it is that you may be listening. Today's episode of the show is going to be an accumulation of our work over the past five to six months. Not the best work, but our best efforts to uh, be journalistically credible and have a strong moral conscience as it relates to what I have described time and time again, and you'll hear me describe it as such again in this story, a sports story of a generation, uh, which is Deshaun Watson and everything that has happened within the last what is now about to be 20 months since we first learned about Deshaun Watson Uh, engaging in sexual assault, sexual harassment, and sexually predatory behavior with at least 30 women, of which who have either come forward in lawsuits or have not filed lawsuits against Watson, but have uh, come forward in reporting done by Sports Illustrated and the New York Times and Real Sports with Bryant Gumbel, depositions that have been uncovered in the civil suits. Um, And it's been a journey of growth and learning for myself in this journalistic space of actually taking on a story and while not doing original capital J journalism, doing journalism that presents facts in a way that is concrete and uh, in a way that describes very clearly why this is a really important story to talk about uh, for a cause that I feel personally very much... Uh, is important to bring to light in this weird arena of sports, and that is the way that women are treated within the professional setting and how men with power will be able to have free reign without a measure of proper accountability because of the protection under the systems with which have been created, such as the legal institution and in the legal system or institution, in this case, the institution of football in which Deshaun Watson stands to make the league hundreds of millions of dollars by himself. This is a quantifiable number that he is worth hundreds of millions of dollars to the NFL. 
and institutions were never going to be able to create proper accountability for this person. So weeks ago, back on October 18th, we recorded a podcast in which we laid out all the details of this and why it was super important to talk about this well before Deshaun Watson's return because within the sports media landscape, specifically sports media entities owned or in partnership with the NFL, whether it's ESPN, NBC Sports, the NFL Network itself, which those are the main, uh, you could go to CBS Sports, Fox Sports, like the, the main entities around football coverage and football coverage from Sunday to Sunday outside of the games comes from these entities that have partnerships by the league or are outright owned by the league, such as the NFL Network. And so because everyone informed or not informed is going to have a a conversation about Deshaun Watson this week because he is now returning, he's going to play football Sunday for the Cleveland Browns. Because of this, it is important that we laid this out a month plus ago, six weeks ago, rehashed it two weeks ago on the show, and I couldn't help myself from bringing it up this week, even though there is nothing new to add as it relates to this. So what I did is I pieced together the important points from the past five to six months in which we've done, I went back seven different podcasts with detailed information every single time we take this story and break it into important pieces. We have the moral and ethical side to this case. What specifically Deshaun Watson has done, why this is abhorrent, and humanizing and empathizing with the victims is incredibly important for understanding how to proceed and perhaps effectuate some level of change in the future. Talking about exactly the timeline of events, the information that now is very clear because detailed reporting, lawsuits and depositions, even an NFL investigation, which you'll hear me talk about, has a lot of made-up rules based on the NFL's personal conduct policy that didn't exist until 2015. All of this information is out there. All of this information exists, and so putting it in not the most perfect way to be journalistic about this. Again, I'm doing a podcast for free. I mean, not for free. I mean, we have sponsors, but I'm doing this on commission out of a side job. So it's not the most perfect journalism in the world. I fully acknowledge that. And many of these conversations that you're going to hear are three and four months old. I've done my best to dissect information and bring forth only the most important and still relevant points. I'm probably going to miss on some stuff. This is going to be multiple hours long, and I fully acknowledge that there are going to be mistakes made within here. It is giving a clearer and conciser picture about the information that is available. And the reason this is so important is because we are never going to have an opportunity like this again. With such a star athlete, and we say this all the time, it is the magnitude of the perpetrator, not the victims, that makes this a story. But what it can do is highlight how this is a case that happens to dozens of people who are powerless or don't have the same level of power in many of these situations and don't receive proper accountability because these are systemic flaws in most of the institutions in America, whether it's the corporate institution, whether it's the legal institution, whether it's institutions like schools or higher education that effectively operate as governments, the U.S. government itself, 
These are systemic failures along institutions. And so sports and the culture that exists around sports and the amount of media coverage that's dedicated to sports allows this to be a story that I've called a sports story of a generation. And that gives a platform which otherwise a story like this, even as we're talking about at least 30 women who have been sexually harassed, sexually assaulted, or have had sexually predatory behavior engaged by Deshaun Watson against them, we're not going to have a story like that with that type of magnified media coverage because Deshaun Watson is a recognizable, famous football player who moves hundreds of millions of dollars in the largest entertainment industry, the largest single entertainment industry in America. And so as you'll hear me outline along these shows or along these podcasts with which we've recorded over the past six months, it's important to recognize that accountability was never going to be achieved, and it was important to spend the last few months talking about this so that we weren't all crammed into this one week in which everyone was going to be talking about it. So I took the time to be informed. I took the time to talk about this in a meaningful and concise way. And now, if you crammed until the last day in which you're going to have to watch Deshaun Watson and place your morals and ethics in whatever place that you reside around the NFL, allowing a sexual predator who has not received proper accountability because it was impossible under the systems and structures that exist, and we're going to outline that here on this show, regardless of what the punishment was, it was never going to be enough because institutions were going to protect their interests and institutions are not equipped to handle circumstances like this. Legal institutions were not handled, were not equipped to handle situations like this. And so if legal institutions don't have it figured out, the NFL's made-up legal system that started in 2015 certainly wasn't going to be equipped to create a proper measure of accountability for Deshaun Watson. So the thing I will continue to articulate is one, accountability was never going to be achieved because it is, it is impossible with all of the protections institutions have provided for these situations, for men, overwhelmingly men, but for perpetrators of sexual harassment and sexual assault within the workplace. And additionally, the most important part is to continue to empathize with the victims whose stories you're going to hear talked about over and over through the reporting that we've done. It is important to continue empathizing with victims and continuing to want to do better and motivate for change because at this point, you cannot fix the damage that has been done by Deshaun Watson. That was done years ago. And all measures of accountability have been taken at this point. What we're reaching is the moment in which he is now being reintegrated into the world despite the fact that proper accountability has not been reached and whether that's a, a, a situation that the consuming public will have any sort of effect towards because it is morally and ethically compromised. I'm, this is the end of all of that. The, the victims have gotten any measure of accountability. Legal, legally, there is no future recourse as it relates to Deshaun Watson. The NFL has handed down their punishment, appealed their punishment, and he has served it. There is no more measure of accountability. So the best we can do now is hope that for whatever accountability he received, it helps along the, the grief and the trauma process for victims and hope that in the future there will be changes that create more accountability for men under these circumstances. 
and we're going to touch on a lot of different places and a lot of different winding pieces as we've done over the past five to six months as it relates to this case. So what you're going to hear snippets from today, beginning here, you're going to hear from the podcast we recorded on October 18th, which lays out all of the details of the case, what uh, the moral and ethical conundrums, then we're going to move into the legal systems and how the legal systems prepared for this and what measures of accountability were taken legally through the court system, the civil lawsuits, the uh, the criminal courts in Texas, and the NFL's made-up legal system that was created under the personal conduct policy after everything that happened with Ray Rice in 2014. So legal systems as it relates to that, and then we're going to discuss the football aspects, the trade, all of the details that go into the less important stuff than uh, the morals and ethics, the real cases of these victims and reporting that's been done around it, and the legal sides of this case. We'll, we'll talk about football at the end, as we've done every time we've talked about this, breaking it into three different pieces, morals and ethics, legal, and NFL slash football. And we're going to put the football to the side, we're going to put legals to the side, begin by talking about morals and ethics and the specific cases, the real stories of real victims. Then we're going to talk about legal aspects, and then we're going to talk about football aspects. And again, I'm piecing together a lot of different podcasts here, so it may not be perfect. The best place to go is to listen to many of these individually. I listed all of the links to them in the description to this episode. If one specifically calls to you, I encourage you to check that out. We did October 18th's podcast, which was a summation of everything that's happened in preparation for this week, when Deshaun Watson was going to return. We did a podcast in August, once the 11-game suspension was finalized, and talking about how I, my hope is that whatever sort of suspension is only, everyone's going to set their morals and ethics in different places, and I hope that the suspension provides some level of relief perhaps progress along the trauma and grief and and perhaps creates a measure of accountability that is satisfactory to the victims in their recovering process. Uh, We talked about the initial six-game suspension, the NFL's disciplinary hearing. That podcast came on on August 2nd, 2022. Uh, We'll also include pieces from the New York Times story with Jenny Vrentas, of which we did a full piece on June 8th. We're going to include pieces from the Bryant Gumbel uh, Real Sports piece, and there's also sound bites we include. We we did a full podcast on that back on May 28th of 2022. You can go back to that. All the links to these podcasts are in the description to this episode, and we're going to have a brief clip from the settlement which the podcast first released on June 22nd, 2022. So again, October 18th's podcast is going to be a summation of the story, which you'll hear parts of. We had the 11-game suspension, August 2nd, 2020, Deshaun Watson's 6-game suspension. June 22nd, the settlement, June 8th, uh, talking about the New York Times report by Jenny Vrentas. And May 28th, 2000, or May 27th, I believe, 2022, the Real Sports with Bryant Gumbel piece of which you'll hear parts of. Pieces of those six episodes are going to be included here in this episode in which we surmise all of the reporting and all of the details with which we've done around Deshaun Watson so that 
perhaps today, tomorrow, weeks from now, months from now, this is a resource that you can go back to. Uh, and again, I would have preferred that we had this conversation while he was serving his punishment. We did as best we could around, I mean, we did many conversations around this, so I'm not going to say we didn't put in the work. Obviously, I always wish we could have done more. So now that everything is leading to his return, all of the accountability is done. We are at the point of reintegrating him into the football world when a lot of people feel like we can wipe our hands of this whole situation. We can now have this documentation of what has been going on for the past 20 months as it relates to everything with Deshaun Watson, which I will articulate once again, a sports story of a generation. Here's the reporting from Jenny Vrentas, first and foremost. And if you want to read the full story, it's available on the New York Times right now. You can check it out with the link in the description to this episode. The accusations have been frequent and startling. More than two dozen women have said the football star Deshaun Watson harassed or assaulted them during massage appointments that Watson and his lawyers insist were innocuous. Two grand juries in Texas this year declined to charge him criminally and, while the NFL considers whether to discipline him, Watson has gotten another job, signing a five-year, $230 million fully guaranteed contract to play quarterback for the Cleveland Browns. It is time, Watson and his representatives say, for everyone to move on. Yet, a New York Times examination of records, including depositions and evidence for the civil lawsuits as well as interviews of some of the women, show that Watson engaged in more questionable behavior than previously known. The Times' review also showed that Watson's conduct was enabled, knowingly or not, by the team he played for at the time, the Houston Texans, who provided a venue Watson used for some of his appointments. A team representative also furnished him with a non-disclosure agreement after a woman who is now suing him threatened online, ex online to expose his behavior. Rusty Hardin, Watson's lawyer, says the cl his client continues to vehemently deny the allegations in the lawsuit. The Texans did not respond to specific questions about Watson's use of team resources. They said in a statement that they first learned of the allegations against him in March 2021 and have cooperated with investigators and will continue to do so. Spokesperson for the Browns said the team had no immediate comment. An NFL spokesperson declined to comment as well. Watson had said publicly that he hired about 40 different therapists across his five seasons in Houston, but the Times reporting found that he booked appointments with at least 66 different women in just the 17 months from fall 2019 through spring 2021, which by the way, spring 2021 was when the lawsuits were first being filed against him. A few of these additional women, speaking publicly for the first time, described experiences that undercut Watson's insistence that he was only seeking professional massage therapy. One woman, who did not sue Watson or complain to the police, told the Times that he was persistent in his requests for sexual acts during their massage, including, quote, begging her to put her mouth, to, to put her mouth on his penis. Quote, I specifically had to say, no, I can't do that said the woman, who spoke on the condition of anonymity to protect her family's privacy. Quote, and that's when I went into asking him, what's it like being famous? Like, what's going on? You're about to mess up everything. Before Watson was drafted by the Texans 12th overall in 2017, he was a champion-winning quarterback at Gainesville High School in Clemson. 
Since his first wave of suits were filed against Watson last year, the main allegations against him have been familiar. Women complained that Watson had turned massages sexual without their consent, including purposefully touching them with his penis and coercing sexual acts. It's not clear when he began looking for so many different women to give him massages. Hardin has said his client needed to book appointments ad hoc when the coronavirus pandemic began, though Watson began working with numerous women before then. Not all the women who gave Watson massages between October 2019 and March 2021 have detailed their interactions with him. Some who have shared their experiences say they had no problems. Others describe troubling and similar behaviors. The 66 women are the 24 who have sued him, including two who's filed suits within the last week. In the most recent suit, the woman says Watson masturbated during their massage. A woman who sued but then withdrew the complaint because, quote, privacy and security concerns. Two women who filed criminal complaints against Watson but did not sue him. At least 15 therapists who issued statements of support for Watson at the request of his lawyers and gave him massages during that period. At least four therapists from Genuine Touch, the massage therapy group contracted with the Texans. Five women identified by the plaintiff's lawyers during the investigation for their civil suits. At least 15 other women whose appointments with Watson were confirmed through interviews and records reviewed by the New York Times. A deeper look at the civil suits, including a review of private messages entered as evidence, show the lengthy efforts by Watson to book massages and the methods he used to assure women that he could be trusted. One woman who sued Watson was a flight attendant who began taking massage therapy classes during the pandemic. She and Watson were in the same social circle, but Watson acknowledged in deposition that they had never really spoken except to say hello. In November 2020, after a friendly exchange on Instagram, Watson saw the woman was a massage therapist and sent a message asking for an appointment. As they struggled to work out a time, Watson told her, quote, just trying to support black businesses, a message he repeated later. Watson regularly presented himself as an ally to businesswomen. In the suit filed this week, the therapist alleged that he told her that he, quote, really wanted to support black businesses. And on another occasion, he left a woman perplexed when he purchased 30 bottles of her $40 skin cleanser. In messages to the woman, whom he knew from his social circle, Watson asked to meet at the Houstonian, an upscale hotel and club where the Texans had secured a membership for him. She said she wasn't comfortable going to a hotel because she knew Watson's girlfriend, and indeed had once babysat her and her younger brother. The woman told Watson she wanted to keep things, quote, professional and respectful. Quote, oh, most definitely, always professional, he texted. I even have an NDA I have therapists sign too. He was referring to the NDA he had received just days earlier from a member of the Texans' security staff. Watson didn't explain in the text how the woman would benefit from signing a document meant to protect him. Finally, the woman suggested they meet at her mother's house in Manville, a 30-minute drive for Watson. He responded, quote, damn, that's far, but agreed to make the trip. In the civil suit, the woman filed against Watson last year. She said she was uneasy with his directions to, quote, get up in there during the massage, but chalked it up to her inexperience and agreed to work with him again. When he ejaculated during the second appointment and then asked her for another massage later that day at the Houstonian, she first agreed, then told him she could not make it. She eventually blocked his number. Most of the women Watson saw for massages did not sue or call the police. 
but even some who did not complain said Watson came looking for sex. The woman who sold bottles of cleanser to Watson had a few appointments with him during the summer of 2020. This anesthetician, sorry, who spoke on condition of anonymity to protect her privacy, told Watson when he booked an appointment that she was licensed only to give him a back facial. But she said in an interview with the Times that he got fully undressed and directed her towards his groin. When she said there was no sexual contact, she be- while she while she said there was no sexual contact, she believed that he was seeking more than a professional massage. Watson and his lawyers have said he was only seeking massages. Lawyers have acknowledged that Watson had sexual contact with three of the women who have sued him. The sexual acts took place after massages and were initiated by women. Asked whether he was asserting that Watson never had sexual contact with any other massage therapists, Hardin did not respond. Another woman who spoke to the Times, a physical therapist who did not sue Watson, said he initiated sexual contact in all three of their appointments. This woman, who spoke on condition of anonymity to protect her privacy, said in an interview she began by working on Watson's back. But when he flipped over, she said his demeanor and voice changed, and he began aggressively dictating where he wanted her to touch him. In their first session, she said he got into the happy baby yoga pose on his back with his feet in his hands and asked her to massage between the testicles and anus. She laughed off the request, but said he grabbed her wrist and put her hand there. The woman said Watson twice initiated sexual intercourse, once by pulling down the scrubs she was wearing. She and Watson knew each other from around town and were on friendly terms, and she admitted she let him proceed with these sexual acts. Quote, I just didn't know how to tell him no, she said, which, for those who don't know, is sexual coercion. That was me ad-libbing. Hardin said in a statement, it would be irresponsible and premature for us to comment on the vague details put forth by anonymous individuals. In June 2020, Watson began frequenting a spa in a strip mall off Interstate 45, at least a 30-minute drive from his home or work. He had found a new U spa on Instagram and sent a message. The owner, Dion, Dion Lois, became a resource for Watson, able to connect him with multiple women for massages. She looked out for him, she said in a deposition, sometimes arranging for a security guard when Watson came in, concerned the expensive cars he drove might make him a target for robbery. She also got things from him. In November 2020, Watson paid her $5,000 through an app, she said, to buy spa equipment. Lois told one of her employees in a text, I told you I'll show you how to get money from men. That's my specialty. It might be Louise, by the way. It's L-O-U-I-S. So I'm going to go to Louise, Lois, kind of the same thing. Louis and her lawyer did not respond for request for comment. During the months Louis and Watson worked together, she set up appointments for him with several women who worked there, none of whom was licensed in Texas to perform massages. One was the woman who said Watson begged her for oral sex. She described how he tried to build up sexual acts, starting with his request that she work on his behind and go higher up on the inner thighs, which put her hands uncomfortably close to his testicles. When he flipped over, she said, he was exposed with an erection, but she refused his request for oral sex. That woman did not sue Watson, but four other employees of A New You Spa did, They all said in their lawsuits that Louis gave him special attention. 
In June 2020, one woman said in her suit, Louis drove her to a hotel to meet Watson for a massage, during which he groped her and touched her hand with his penis. Louis was not in the room, but in text messages she later sent to this woman, she appeared to refer to Watson treating her employees poorly. Quote, I began talking to Deshaun. I just told his ass off. He got it now. Louis added in a second message, I told him he can't treat us black women any kind of way. In her deposition, Louis denied sending these messages, though evidence in the civil suits indicate they were sent from her phone number. Nia Smith, who also worked at a new U spa, filed a lawsuit against Watson last week, the 23rd of 24 civil cases. Smith said that during their first massage, Watson asked her to put her fingers inside his anus, a request she said she told Louis about afterwards. She said in the second session he asked her if she wanted his penis in her mouth, and that he repeatedly requested sex in their third and final massage. Smith also claimed that Louis knew Watson was seeking sex and told her she needed to keep Watson happy. In a deposition, Louis denied she knew anything about Watson's sexual desires. In early November 2020, after Smith stopped working at a new use spa, she posted text messages from Watson along with his phone number and his cash app receipts on Instagram. She included the message, quote, I could really expose you, adding an expletive. Days later, when Watson went to work at the Texan Stadium, he found an NDA in his locker. He later said in a deposition that Brent Nakara, a former Secret Service agent who is the Texans' director of security, put it there after Watson told him about Smith's Instagram posts. From the deposition, question, okay, this NDA, you had already gotten from, you had already gotten this NDA by this point, obviously from Brent. Watson, yes. Brent Nakara? Watson, yes, sir. Head of security for the Texans? Watson, yes, sir. He's the guy that gave it to you. He put it in my locker. Yes, sir. Watson began taking the NDA to massages that same week, giving one to the woman in Manville who signed it and another to a woman who said in her lawsuit that she ended the session after he suggested a sexual act. Watson told her she had to sign in order for him to pay, so she did, according to her filing. Watson said in the deposition that he used this NDA only for massage appointments because he had lawyers and agents who handled his other business. It's unclear whether the Texans knew how many massages Watson was getting or who was providing them, but their resources helped support his massage habits away from the team. Watson acknowledged in a deposition that the Texans arranged for him to have, quote, a place at the Houstonian. He used the fitness club, dined there, and also set up massages in his hotel room. At least seven women met him at the hotel for appointments, according to interviews and records, two of whom filed civil lawsuits, and two complained to the police. The Texans weren't aware of massage appointments at the hotel, quote, that I know of, Watson said. He also said that his access to the property was not under his name. One woman who gave Watson a massage at the Houstonian said she was told the room was registered to a member of the Texans' training staff. So... That's most of the reporting that was done. The rest talks about Rusty Harden and possibly some foul play in the, the criminal investigation, but it seems like standard legal practice, but something that's also kind of shady about his involvement with the district attorney and all that stuff. But those are the humanizing stories that I wanted to talk about with the new reporting that has come out. What I wanted to talk about today is the Real Sports with Bryant Gumbel 
story that was done around this case. And in the case, they got to talk to Ashley Solis, who has been an absolutely pioneering leader on this issue. Ashley has been the person who is the face and the representation of these 22 women. We don't know the names of really any of the other woman, uh, women. There's a, there's a second woman who speaks in this story named Kyla Hayes, and she also talks on camera about her experiences with Deshaun Watson and articulates how a, a, a part of this story that hasn't been talked about, which is how you have to interact with someone in these situations a second, a third, a fourth time after they've engaged in lewd behavior and sexual misconduct in a professional setting. And when they make you incredibly uncomfortable and yet you're forced into interactions, how that can replicate trauma. Um, if, if you haven't watched The Real Sports Story with Bryant Gumbel, it's available on HBO Max. Um, it's really well done. They, they follow the same structure that we do when talking about these types of cases, which is the human story of the victims and humanizing the people who are victims in this case, then talking about the legal standpoint, and then talking about it from a sports standpoint. They follow that same structure. It's really well done. I learned things about this case that I didn't know because I haven't been following the, the civil court case as new details come forward and depositions are held because it's just a really long process and news sports news media which is the reason that this is covered in the first place. You don't see every case like this being brought to light and details being deeply reported. Even sports news media are not great at digging into the legal findings of this. They're great at talking about trade values and stories about the athletes themselves instead of the women who are bringing forth this case. And, and by the way, they're not expected to be legal experts in this regard. It just would make it easier for myself. It takes people like the reporters at Real Sports to uncover information that even I didn't know about while following this story. So let's talk about this first from the moralizing or, or the moral standpoint, the morals and ethics and humanizing this story for these women. So Ashley Solis was is the person who's been vocal about this. If you've seen we've played the clip before on this podcast where Ashley Solis stands up at the original press conference back in March of 2021 as the first person to file a lawsuit against Deshaun Watson. I believe that was on March 17th because we did a one-year recap on the date of that. And within a week, I think it was actually within like a day, you had a dozen more people coming forward with these types of complaints. Ultimately, over the course of three weeks, that turns into 20, I, I believe it was 24 and then a, once they made it such that people couldn't uh, had to disclose themselves publicly, a couple of people dropped the, the suits against Watson, so now it's down to 22 people. And so Ashley Solis is the person who's speaking as a face and a voice for women who, in part, is protecting their identity so that they aren't subjugated to the national scorn and, and character smearing that people have done to this woman the same way that people did to Christine Blasey Ford in the wake of the Brett Kavanaugh trials, where Christine Blasey Ford has had to move houses multiple times in the aftermath of such a case. And the same way Anita Hill was treated back in 1991 when she testified against Clarence Thomas about his sexual misconduct as he was being added to the Supreme Court. In that same respect and in that same vein, people have uh, gone after Ashley Solis, and she has continued to remain a strong voice and a leader for these women who have followed her. She was the leader who broke the, the, the door down and, and went through the wall 
to to be the uncomfortable person being the one and only and obviously other people had communicated with tony busby but being the one person who was willing to go forth with filing a lawsuit and then having 21 other women follow in suit after her which is very disheartening and also empowering at the same time you, you don't want dozens of women to have their professional careers tarnished by the most powerful athlete within 50 mile radius of where they live and at the same time to have that community of people who can lean on the person to the left and lean on to the person to the right in sharing their story and sharing their pain is incredibly powerful in helping to believe women and empowering women to come forward in these situations so Ashley Solis is the person who who speaks eloquently on this issue and talks about it being a slap in the face that the NFL is rewarding Deshaun Watson for this, the type of behavior that labels him a sexual predator. Like, by all accounts and information, this is a person who is a sexual predator engaged in a he said, she said, she said, she said, she said, she said, 21 down the line, she says, against Deshaun Watson. And so... Ashley Solis talked about the pain of staying quiet for years and then deciding to file a lawsuit with Tony Busby. And it was it was really closer to about a year and then having two plus years of her life be consumed by this situation and, and still being able to engage in in her business. And one of the quotes that she has in the real sports story very eloquently put is, I am not a sex worker. And the reputation is such of that sometimes in massage therapy that men, sometimes women, but especially men, are inclined to believe that a female massage therapist is stereotypically within the context of a sex worker. And she articulates this eloquently to Soledad O'Brien, who was the, the reporter for Real Sports, who was doing this story. And Ashley talked about how this case is something that has consumed her life and and she's you know doing it because it's the right thing to do and all of that stuff and there's it's a really sad story because in some of these cases there are blurred lines about consensual relationships and harassment and the problem is is that the smear campaign of ashley solis and any woman who comes forward you're going to have to endure this as a deterrent for men in power to not to create a system where they don't have consequences. And so this is where the smear campaign becomes incredibly difficult. And hearing Ashley talk again is always very empowering because it's not backing down and, and helping spread the word and helping me be more informed so that maybe I can inform other people or people watching real sports can be informed with the real reporting around this. And so the other person I was introduced to is Kyla Hayes. And Kyla Hayes was uh, tells the story about how she was contacted through Instagram at her spa by Deshaun Watson and the same pattern of harassment that is described by her that Ashley Solis went through where Deshaun Watson kept touching her hand intentionally with his penis and making that that motion of like nudging towards it ultimately Watson ejaculates and she articulates this in part with lawyer speak uh, for sure and he ejaculates and it's a terrible setting and he has a little bit of a threatening way out the door where he's talking and the same thing happened to Ashley was like I don't want my career to be messed with the same way you don't want yours and so that threatening message kind of puts women into silence where they don't engage, where in the case of Ashley Solis, she doesn't engage with Watson again and doesn't want to and, and stay silent for years about the situation 
that happens. In the case of Kyla Hayes, Kyla has to have subsequent text interactions with Deshaun Watson, which then in court are going to be brought up against her and her case because, oh, if you were so afraid of this situation, why did you continue to engage with this person? And so Kyla Hayes explains how she had to give him the quote-unquote okey-doke in order to kind of like say, oh, I'm sorry, I don't have availability right now. Uh, let me just ignore you because this person is powerful and there's a fear that if you say the wrong thing, this person may retaliate against you. And this person holds a lot of power and the power to derail your business in a, it like, and also send a massive army of Houston up against you. He has the power to do that and only the quote-unquote good nature of this person is who again is is a sexual predator in this situation is preventing you is keeping you quiet and preventing you from trying to say the wrong thing and so she explains how she just had to kind of sidestep him and just avoid him as much as he could until he stopped asking for follow-up appointments and other business similar to the first interaction that they had where he ejaculates on her and tries to rub and removes his towel and rubs himself up against her while she's trying to engage in a massage and the details of this are really terrible and I encourage you to to watch the story it's heartbreaking it really does help gain perspective on this situation cuz you see Ashley Solis holding back tears as she describes this situation and talking about how her body just started feeling hot and muscles were tensing up and there's this fear that something bad was going to happen and cortisol starts dripping and you're afraid of, should I get out of here? Do I just freeze? Do I hope that it stops? It's a really, really sad, like, I, I say sad. It's really disheartening. It's scary. It's all kinds of emotions that also make you angry at Deshaun Watson, even though I try to not process grief and tragedy through anger. It's just terrible that there's not a belief of this person who's clearly distraught by this situation and willing to put her life through years of torment in order to do the right thing and be a leader for 21 other women. It's a really great piece. I encourage you to check it out. There, there's a lot of great moralizing that they talk about around this situation. Or, sorry, not moralizing. There's a great humanizing of this situation. And we talk about morals and ethics because there is a line that definitely gets crossed here, and this relates to the NFL and whether you think working in the NFL is a privilege and how high the personal conduct policy goes above the law. And we'll get to that part at the end of the episode as well. They just kind of tie together in this context is that humanizing and following a moral and ethical path and, and talking about this stuff and the types of behavior specifically that Watson engages in with these victims is important for describing this story. So we've talked about this a couple times before. I think it's a really good piece that you should check out on Real Sports there as well. How we talk about a sexual predator returning to our Sundays and how we talk about him within the construct of this dumb space when most people agree he did not receive adequate accountability for his sexually predatory behavior, how we talk about that within the context of his return and being enabled and as Ashley Solis, the, the first and most public facing victim of Deshaun Watson's abuse detailed to Real Sports with Bryant Gumble, feels like he's being rewarded for the behavior that he's engaged in. When that's what we're talking about within this context, it's very important to talk about how we're going to 
discuss his reintegration into normalcy and how the NFL is going to look the other way around the situation. And it's important to talk about it now while there are still weeks and weeks away from his return. And we'll get to that in a bit because what's always important every time we talk about Deshaun Watson is to talk about the moral and ethical stance and what Deshaun Watson has engaged in, talking about the legal aspects of his case, talking about any NFL aspects of the case last because it is very important to make clear distinctions about what we are talking about when it comes to Deshaun Watson and setting the football stuff aside until we address the moral and ethical conversation and the legal conversation and empathize with the victims whose lives have been permanently affected by Deshaun Watson. So let's start off by talking about what Deshaun Watson has engaged in over the last three years. Deshaun Watson has had 25 women bring civil lawsuits against him for sexual misconduct, sexual harassment, sexual abuse, and sexual assault. And Deshaun Watson went to court following... When those first came out, Deshaun Watson was not placed on any administrative leave. Uh, The Houston Texans decided to sit him for a full season while he was going through a criminal court process because two victims brought criminal charges against Deshaun Watson alleging sexual assault. The bar for sexual assault is incredibly high in Texas, and so after a year, almost a year to the date, it was about 360 or something days after Deshaun Watson's first civil suit and ultimately within the next 48 hours, the first 17 civil suits were brought against him. One year later, criminal charges were dropped in the state of Texas because they could not move towards a prosecution. Again, the criminal bar for sexual assault is incredibly high in Texas, and there was not enough to move forward with a criminal prosecution based on the evidence that they had received and the fact that the Justice Department in Texas, as is is the case in many states and many cities, is not equipped to handle cases of sexual crimes. We talked about this last month with Matt Areza in San Diego State and the chronic systemic issue with prosecuting and collecting evidence when it comes to sexual assault and sex-related crimes. So Deshaun Watson's criminal charges end up being dropped. The 25 civil suits end up proceeding. Ultimately, we know that the end of that is that Deshaun Watson is going to settle because Deshaun Watson is a very famous person with infinite resources and access to continue to make more money, such as Deshaun Watson is going to do with the Cleveland Browns and as he did with the Houston Texans while he was fighting his civil suits. Deshaun Watson made $38 million during the 2021 football season, and he did not play a single game for the Houston Texans. Whether that was a wink-wink agreement between Houston and the NFL to have Deshaun Watson sit, or whether it was Houston protecting their best trade asset and quite possibly the biggest trade asset in the history of the NFL— Regardless of what the reasoning was, Deshaun Watson made $38 million in such lawsuit. Uh, We've consulted with legal experts and legal precedent that suggests that while the, the settlement details of the lawsuit are unknown based on precedent, Deshaun Watson could be looking at somewhere between anywhere between a $3 million, a $10 million bill. It's hard to speculate, and there are real victims within this case. And again, part of the settlement is that the details were not disclosed. 25 women end up bringing civil suits against Deshaun Watson. This week, a 26th woman brought a case against Deshaun Watson in uh, Harris County in Houston. That lawsuit documents sexual coercion that Deshaun Watson engaged in. 
We've heard from reporting done by Jenny Vrentas of Sports Illustrated and now of the New York Times that Deshaun Watson met with 67 massage therapists between 2017 and when the lawsuits were brought against him in 2021. Deshaun Watson alleges in his depositions that he only saw 30 to 40 massage therapists, uh, which would match the amount of people who have publicly come forward. Again, reporting has debunked that and deemed Deshaun Watson to be not credible. Uh, Among the now 26 women who have brought cases uh, civilly against Deshaun Watson or criminally, of the 26, we also have an additional four women, at least four whom we know of, who have uh, detailed what Deshaun have detailed interactions of sexual harassment and sexual assault with Deshaun Watson anonymously in reporting done by Jenny Vrentas of Sports Illustrated and the New York Times. We linked the reporting to that story beginning in March of 2021, and then the big story that Jenny Vrentas did, which also brings the Houston Texans' involvement into the story, speaks to more women who previously had not come forward and come forward with details of the sexual harassment and sexual assault that Deshaun Watson engaged in with them. Between those two pieces, we have four women who have brought forth details of sexual assault against Deshaun Watson and are not pursuing or have not pursued civil lawsuits against Deshaun Watson, which means we know of 30 women whom Deshaun Watson has engaged in sexual assault or sexual harassment with. And we know that within a within a three and a half year period, Deshaun Watson met with 67 known massage therapists. Again, the full reporting of these stories is has been documented well by reporting done by Sports Illustrated and the New York Times and Jenny Vrentas. Real Sports with Bryant Gumbel back in May did a full detailed story on the uh, assault and pattern of sexually predatory behavior that Deshaun Watson engaged in. They speak to Ashley Solis, who has been the most public-facing victim of Deshaun Watson's sexual abuse in both the beginning process in March of 2021, and she speaks on camera in this real sports story. Kyla Hayes, another victim, speaks on camera in this story. And we get to hear from victims who have gone public with their accounts of sexual assault and sexual abuse by Deshaun Watson. We have done six hours of reporting on this, and many of the stories I won't be able to address here because I don't have them in front of me. We've done podcasts going back to May, in which we de- we discussed the Real Sports with Bryant Gumbel story that was done on this case, and new details that came to light from reporting on this, following the depositions from the civil trials as well. Um, we did a podcast June 8th. That was an hour-long conversation about the Jenny Vrentas reporting from the New York Times, which, again, you can read that in the description to this episode. There's a link. June 22nd, we did a podcast. June 27th, we did a podcast. August 2nd and August 19th, we've also done cases once the suspensions were handed down, which represents the final form of accountability, which we'll get to those coming up later, but I do want to reiterate Reporting done by Sports Illustrated, reporting done by the New York Times, reporting done by Bryant Gumbel brings more details to light in addition to the stories of the 30 women who have brought forward their experiences of Deshaun Watson sexually assaulting them and sexually harassing them. We've done podcasts on June 8th, June 22nd, June 27th, 
August 2nd and August 19th with more details that I will not get to within this podcast. Some of the stories and some of the depositions that these women have given detail how Deshaun Watson repeatedly ejaculated on their bodies. Uh, He would refuse to wear towels as standard procedure within massage therapies. Uh, In many of these cases, he threatened the women after the interactions when they were either crying or in fear or shock where he talked about how he has a career and they have a career and they don't want to have something happen to either of those. That's a a paraphrased quote from the Jenny Vrenta story. There have been a handful of cases that detail sexual coercion in which Deshaun Watson repeatedly asks for some sort of sexual favor and then out of fear they end up engaging in sexual behaviors. Sometimes there were repeated interactions afterwards uh, because of fear in those situations and many of these accounts are public in depositions. Reporting has sifted through a lot of them. Again, we've discussed many of these cases in detail, including reading directly from depositions and from reporting done by Sports Illustrated and the New York Times. Again, June 8th, June 22nd, June 27th, August 2nd, August 19th. Those podcasts have more accounts when we're talking about the conduct and behavior that is an unprecedented amount of sexually predatory behavior, sexual assault, and predominantly attack, I mean, overwhelmingly in all of these cases, engaging in this behavior with massage therapists, using these interactions before he gets there, intending to have some sort of sexual interaction, and then whether or not he received consent engaging in those sexual interactions, regardless of the consent of the victims. And we have 30 women who have come forward, now 26 who happen to file lawsuits, and four who anonymously have come forward in reporting done by Sports Illustrated and the New York Times over the past year and a half. This is courtesy of Sarah Barship of ESPN with the details and the first reporting around this. Cleveland Browns quarterback Deshaun Watson has settled all but four of the lawsuits filed against him, attorney Tony Busby said in a statement Tuesday. Since March 16, 2021, 25 lawsuits have been filed against Watson, alleging sexual assault and other inappropriate behavior during massage sessions. Of those 25, one was dropped by the plaintiff when the judge ruled her petition had to be amended with her name. The other 20, Busby said, have been settled. We are working through the paperwork related to those settlements, Busby said in a statement. Quote, once we have done so, those particular cases will be dismissed. The terms and amounts of those settlements are confidential. We won't comment further on the settlements or those cases. Busby noted that Ashley Solis, the first woman to file a lawsuit against Watson and the first to speak publicly and identify herself as a plaintiff, is not one of the 20 women to settle. Quote, Ashley Solis is one of the heroes of this story. Her case has not settled, and thus her story and that of the other three brave women will continue. I look forward to trying these cases in due course, consistent with the other docket obligations and the court's schedule, he said. This is me ad-libbing in a detail from before. Those four cases are going to be processed sometime in 2023. When Tony Busby mentions the court schedule and due course, 2023 is when the, the date for court has been scheduled. Back to the story. 
Although two grand juries in Texas declined to pursue criminal charges against Watson earlier this year, the NFL is investigating whether he violated its code of conduct, and the league interviewed the quarterback in person last month as part of its investigation. At the league's spring meeting, Commissioner Roger Goodell said that he thought the NFL was nearing the end of its investigation, but that he couldn't give a timeline for when a ruling might be made. NFL spokesperson Brian McCarthy said Tuesday that, quote, Today's development has no impact on the collectively bargained disciplinary process. Busby said in his statement that without Solis's courage and willingness to come forward, the NFL wouldn't currently be contemplating discipline. There would be no examination of how teams might knowingly or unknowingly enable certain behavior. Sports teams wouldn't be reviewing their personal screening processes. And this important story wouldn't have dominated the sports headline for more than a year. That's a direct quote by Busby. The Houston Texans traded Watson to the Browns in March in exchange for a package that included three first-round draft picks after the first grand jury announced it would not indict Watson on criminal charges. Last week, Watson said in his news conference that he has no regrets about any of his actions, but admitted that he does regret the impact the allegations have had on the people around him. Hearing Ashley Solis' story at the original press conference and then that inspiring dozens of other women to come forward, not just in filing lawsuits, also telling stories to reporters, like especially Jenny Vrentas, originally in Sports Illustrated. We've talked about the story of the Jane Doe, who was telling the story to uh, to Jenny Vrentas. Jenny Vrentas talked to about two or three more people who we'd never heard from before, who had also had similar types of experiences with Watson and weren't filing lawsuits against Deshaun. Uh, Kyla Hayes went on Real Sports with Bryant Gumble and talked about her experiences of him reaching out on Instagram and engaging in, well, I mean, basically jizzing all over the place, not, you know, obviously the appropriate terms there, but jizzing all over and having his hand, pl placing people's hands in inappropriate places and all kinds of gross behavior that really humanizes how in a professional setting someone could be a victim and be vulnerable to a powerful per and be silenced by the fear of retribution by a powerful man who has has power to disrupt business as Deshaun Watson said on the one story that I remember he said I have a career and just like you have your business I we wouldn't want to ruin that now would we it's not exactly direct quote I don't remember the exact quote but it's basically like I have a reputation just like your business we wouldn't want anything to mess that up and like threatening engaging materials and getting NDAs from the Houston Texans and all kinds of details that we now know that make this story feel incredibly humanizing and clamor for some measure of accountability. And that brings us to what happened today. Financial penalty can be a measure of accountability, especially when it's incredibly difficult to prosecute these cases. In the eyes of the state of Texas, Deshaun Watson did not commit a crime that could be proven beyond a reasonable doubt. Therefore, there was no accountability brought in terms of Deshaun Watson losing his freedoms. There are other measures of accountability, such as inability to earn money. We talked about this a lot with, as a society at large, but we talked about this in the aftermath of the Kevin Spacey allegations. We talked about this with Bill Cosby getting out of jail on a technicality and going on a comedy tour since getting out of jail and writing a book. Louis C.K., similar situation. He he posted a, a new comedy special straight to his audience. You pay $10, you get this comedy special. And preventing someone from being able to earn money is potentially a form of accountability. And in this case, financial penalty can be a measure 
of accountability. It's not perfect. It's difficult to figure out. We've known from the very beginning that civil settlements are difficult because it requires nuanced conversation about the fact that sometimes it's not about what the money is. It's what the money represents. Sometimes it is what the money is. Like, And I know this is convoluted and complicated in the way I'm describing it, but money can represent some measure of closure. And for people who, again, haven't been front-facing in this, like Ashley Solis, who's a name that we all know, a, a person like Kyla Hayes, who I don't know if she settled or not, it was, it was unknown in the details, if you're a person who is a victim and you are also nameless in this situation, the financial settlement to go away can be something that brings closure and brings value and is worth coming forward and going through the legal process for to create some measure of accountability. Ultimately, we could think of the NFL as being an accountability measure of Watson doesn't get to play quarterback for two years, yet in the grand scheme of things, what it ultimately is is Deshaun Watson's inability to make money. Now, last year, he got paid all $38 million to not play for the Houston Texans, and if he gets suspended this year by the NFL's conduct policy, he will only lose $2 million. So the only punishment he's serving is losing two years of his career. It's why I think the NFL originally, before hearing of the settlement today, originally thinking that the NFL would not let him get away with it. And the NFL would exempt list him this year and then suspend him next year. That would be hopefully the situation that would play out since I don't know what's right or what's wrong in terms of punishments in these regards. It just looks to be that the NFL is going to suspend one season and there's going to be an appeal. It's right or wrong. Some people will say it's too strict. Some people will say it's too lenient. I'm not a moral arbiter on these situations. We've talked about this all before. It just appears that the NFL is going to give a one-year suspension and Deshaun Watson is going to accept it and he's going to lose a second year of his career or a third year of his career and all of it's going to pass, etc., etc. And Losing money can be a form of accountability. Receiving compensation can be a form of accountability. It's not the perfect measure of accountability, yet sometimes it's the best we can do, especially when we're talking about a rich and powerful person like Deshaun Watson. Whatever settlement it was, and we know from detailed reports that originally uh, back in October when Stephen Ross and the Dolphins were trying to trade for Deshaun Watson, they offered... They offered $100,000 per person to settle, and the Dolphins required all 23 to settle in order for them to make the trade, and they only got 19 people to settle. And I guess this is now moving into the legal side of it as well. It's blending morals and ethics into the legal conversation now, so I just want to acknowledge that part in talking about what money represents and what accountability can represent for victims in this case. It's now kind of blending into the legal conversation. We know back in or, uh, October of 2021 that it was offered a, a thing. This is from Mike Florio. It is a hundred. It was a hundred thousand dollars per victim and 19 people out of the 23 were willing to settle. Now, 23 became 22, and then two more filed lawsuits within the last, I think it was two weeks or three weeks, right around the timeline of when the New York Times story came out two weeks ago. So I guess within the last month, there have been two more lawsuits that were added to this, um, to from the 23 down to 22 up to 24, and at the time, 19 of the 22 were willing to settle, and now today, 20 of the 24 end up settling 
if it's for around the same $100,000 that 19 were willing to settle for back in 2021, add it all up, it's about $2 million. $2 million of, of damages and the hit to Deshaun Watson's reputation. Well, Deshaun Watson made $38 million not playing football last year. At the same time, $2 million is some measure of compensation and settlement for such a situation. It would be a, a rather unprecedented one for any star athlete or really any famous person as a measure of accountability. Obviously, Harvey Weinstein's entire company went under and they had to pay irreparable damages to, to victims as well. Just from a, from an individual, it would be a measure of unprecedented settlement for such cases where no criminal charges were brought. And so this is... A difficult part is like $2 million is not chump change in, in the regards to Deshaun Watson. He's been rewarded handsomely by the Cleveland Browns because he's very, very good at throwing a football. And this is the convoluted, complicated part of like, it is an unprecedented level settlement. And to some people, it will feel like not enough. For these women, they decided it was enough to settle out of court. And I if that's where the financial damages are, are there and it seems reasonable... I think that who are we to judge such a situation if that is the financial damages that they felt were, were fair compensation and were willing to dismiss the lawsuits and allow everyone to move on or at least allow Deshaun Watson and themselves to move on from this situation, then that's the decision that the, the women made in regards to, to settling. And maybe in order to incentivize a settlement, they potentially got more money out of it. We, we won't know the details until reporting really digs into it and, and gets into it because obviously there was a, a non-disclosure agreement about how much money was allowed to be settled. And so the reason I bring up it could be more than what it was in October of 2020 is the fact that Deshaun Watson's legal team had an incentive to settle after, within the last month, two more lawsuits were brought against Deshaun Watson and the New York Times story was released two weeks ago. Settlement talks had not been engaged in at the time of the Real Sports with Bryant Gumbel story coming out, which I assume the interview came out in May, or the interviews were conducted in May. It came out the last week of May, which was now close to four weeks ago that that, that story ran with Real Sports. And after that fact, sometime between then and now, they re-engaged in settlement talks. And it can't be a coincidence that after the, the New York Times story runs that is a damning indictment of Deshaun Watson with new details and new stories from people who haven't sued Watson and it's piecing a lot of the stuff together. It's not a coincidence that when those come out, you have a settlement two weeks later because the settlement will move along the NFL's timeline. The, the Watson legal team can go to the NFL and say, look, we have now only four pending i mean it's crazy to say that but we only have four pending civil suits instead of 24 it's much less egregious number you can go ahead and hand out the penalty now we can move along with our case no one's going to bring charges forward against him all of that and a bag of peanuts for the legal team it's interesting how they have the incentive to settle they speed up the settlement talks and perhaps by incentivizing it with more money they get 20 of the 24 settlements, similar ratio to the 19 of 23 that were willing to settle back in 
2021, in October 2021, which is roughly nine months ago now, you get you, you get settlements on almost all of the cases that were willing to settle back then and, and dismiss the lawsuits. So we know that detail. This was an inevitable end to the case. It seemed like things were going to go until 2023 because neither side seemed to be engaging in settlement talks. For whatever the reasons may be, Tony Busby and uh, the women looked at this situation, and whether whatever legal advice they may have gotten outside of Tony Busby as well, looked at the offer that was on the table and said, this is probably the best offer we are going to get based on what we are suing Deshaun Watson for. And as gross as that may end up seeming, this is a bit of a standard practice. I'd love to get Drew Davenport back on to, to talk about the legalese of the settlement as well. And this is something that we find pretty common is like you're asking for this the the people are claiming that there's no merit to it they find a settlement point to make it go away this happens all the time in 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 the court of law it was something that again i said last year i thought this was the inevitable conclusion to this story was there was going to be a settlement for these women i just didn't think it would take close to 15 months for that to happen because there is no precedent for such a case taking 15 months there's also no precedent for the levels of allegations that have been brought against Deshaun Watson and so they the process speeds up you get whatever compensation and accountability this is again it would be really really good to know the details I know that there's a a non-disclosure agreement but reported details end up coming out over time I remember when it was the the Colin Kaepernick lawsuit with the NFL they had a non-disclosure agreement and it was reported somewhere between like 15 to 20 million dollars was the settlement in damages and Kaepernick wasn't going to mention the NFL anymore in in blackball or using the phrase blackballing or the NFL wasn't going to mention Colin Kaepernick because of whatever legal protections there might be and you know reporting will hopefully in a high profile case with national media will end up revealing what the settlement was even if it's for some people and we can just get kind of a picture of what kind of accountability measure there was for Deshaun Watson now again we can do the morals and ethics conversation which will lead into the the football part of this conversation in a second and it, and it has a natural flow from here but in terms of the legal standpoint I don't know whether this strengthens the case of Ashley Solis and the four people who are still pursuing a lawsuit or if this diminishes it because there's going to be less of a national focus. Because it's it's totally understandable that when 20 of 24 people settle, that's close to 83% of, well, no, it is 83.3% of the people who have filed lawsuits, people are going to look at that and say, Oh well, the case is basically done. The the you know the, the the lawsuits are not going to continue for most of these people. They're not going to give depositions at a trial. This is basically done, and I understand the point of that. It diminishes what this was all about in the first place, and at the same time, it's a natural, easy way to kind of process this at the same time. This was not about getting to a conclusion. I mean, for some people, maybe it was at the same time. I'm not, I don't know the deep details of this, but it's easy to focus on it and say, this is the conclusion. Settlement was the end game the whole time. This is the conclusion of the case. When four people are still filing lawsuits, and I don't know if the national media is going to disappear a little bit. And if this becomes now 
the the legal's case the legal situation is case closed and now we can move on to the football part of the accountability system and whatever it might end up being you're going to see something like that happen and I don't know for right or for wrong if this is a, a disservice to the leader of the, the case, Ashley Solis, and the four people who still want their day in court, and the, the money doesn't represent justice more than it does actually making change or whatever their uh, feelings. Of, uh, I, I don't know these people at all. I don't know what they feel would be a measure of accountability. They just decided that money was not that form of accountability right now. That's all that this means today. It doesn't mean that they don't care about the money or they care about some higher higher moral ground. I don't know these people. I just know that they are victims of sexual assault and and in some cases sexual sexual assault allegedly and sexual misconduct by Deshaun Watson. And these victims want to have a measure of accountability brought upon Watson. That's all I know about these people. And all that it signifies today is that accountability for them wasn't a financial settlement today and that's totally reasonable and totally understandable i hope these cases continue to process and i hope it leads to deshaun watson being placed on the exempt list even if i know that that's probably not where this is going to end up going so i hope this strengthens their case in the fact that they aren't settling it's just it's more of an island when you're standing there i mean the 24 people are still behind them it's just the 24 people now looks like four, has the appearance of four instead of 24. And that's not the best situation when you're trying to build a coalition and a cause of people. And and yet at the very beginning, Ashley Solis was willing to go forward as one person. And one person became two, which became 17, which became 22, which became 24. So and it became more than that too, because we've heard reporting from Jenny Vrentas with dozen, or not dozens, with with about four or five more people who have told personal accounts who aren't going public and aren't filing lawsuits. So you know, it it become the, the one became two, became four, became seventeen, became twenty two, became twenty three, became twenty four, and became close to thirty people. And you know, maybe maybe four looks a little less strong and united because it feels like those people are fading i don't think that this means like those people who filed lawsuits are just disappearing forever it just makes the it makes it so that national media is going to look away and that force that they had behind them to try and get some measure of accountability from a powerful person who had all of the resources in the world it just feels a little bit less and i hope that this strengthens their case i i genuinely don't know what's going to happen It just looks optically like this is going to, they're going to lose a lot of the thunder and the force that they had when it was a coalition of people. And when the coalition fragments a little bit, it just becomes less strong. And it's, it's already hard enough to try and get a measure of accountability from a rich and powerful person being protected by a $75 billion corporation and 13 teams were lining up to trade for him when he became available. So I hope this strengthens their legal case i don't know what it will mean for ashley solis and the four people who decided today that whatever financial settlement was on the table was not the form of accountability that they were looking for and that's all that it means in their standpoint today so now we can talk about this from the the nfl and the accountability standpoint that that we were talking about earlier because 
one of the things that I first thought about, and we were talking about this within the legal cases, the NFL will provide a measure of accountability by preventing him from pursuing his career for an extended period of time. Now, he got paid last season to not play. And if he gets suspended for this season, he only stands to lose $2 million because by being traded to Cleveland, he could structure his contract in such a way that the guaranteed dollars were all pushed up front and all secured for down the road. So this year, he doesn't face very many financial damages, but he could lose $30 million if he's suspended in 2023, which I guess is why I was thinking if this drags out into 2023, which we mentioned at the beginning, that's when the civil trials will go to court, then you will see that he'll be placed on the exempt list this year, and then he'll go into 2023 and get suspended, and hopefully it's a measure of accountability that leads to actually losing financial compensation, other than just losing two years of your career. And to some people, losing two years of your career but still getting paid is something that feels like accountability or justice to them. Everyone's going to have their moral bars in different places. And the NFL, in the case of Deshaun Watson, they can let him get away with it or they can bring the hammer down. What the Watson legal team is looking at now in the aftermath of more lawsuits being filed this last month and the New York Times story dropping two weeks ago, the settlement was reached like, Okay, financial damages aside, it behooves Deshaun Watson to move this along. Legally, Deshaun Watson, again, as we detailed when we were explaining the timeline, he had criminal charges that were brought against him, and Deshaun Watson ultimately ended up having those dropped. As we mentioned, the the bar for criminal sexual assault is incredibly high in Texas. I jumped the gun a little bit explaining the timeline of events talking about that and how those police forces and legal systems are not equipped systemically to handle cases of sexual crimes, especially sexual crimes against women in states like Texas, for example, that have a high bar already for sexual assault. We talked about this with San Diego State and Matt Areza in a podcast that happened after the claim, after the San Diego State case of football players engaging in raping a 17-year-old woman had been public. We detailed that once Matt Areza was publicly identified in a civil lawsuit as the person who had engaged in that behavior, had engaged in raping a 17-year-old girl. This is a case across all against most states and most cities where there's an issue with prosecuting these crimes. And ultimately, as we talked about, we knew that they were going to head to a settlement. And so on June 21st, 20 of the 24 people who had filed lawsuits against Deshaun Watson settled in their cases. A 25th person ended up dropping their lawsuit once their identity had to be made public. And of the 24 who were still pursuing a criminal, or I'm sorry, a civil lawsuit against Deshaun Watson, 20 ended up settling on June 1st. And then Three more ended up settling before the NFL came down with their decision to give Deshaun Watson. Originally, uh, an independent arbiter ruled a six-game suspension, which was then upped by the NFL to 11 games because ultimately they had final say 
over the decision. And the August 2nd and August 19th episodes that we did detail more the how we got to that suspension, uh, the arbitration process with Judge Sue L. Robinson, who, after going through the, the process of hearings, after so this is after 20 of the 24 women settle with Deshaun Watson in court. And again, we don't know the details of those settlements. It's financial penalties, and it's more so what that money represents for the victims than it is the money itself. So it's okay that it's anonymous, it, uh, that it's undisclosed, and that we don't know the details of that. It doesn't detract from the case itself. It's more so representative of a settlement from a rich and powerful person. So after that, the process moves to the NFL's made-up judicial system, the the personal conduct policy and investigation. And because, as detailed in the Real Sports with Bryant Gumbel story, Deshaun Watson had and and the NFL began investigating this case. And because the NFL was, uh, in many cases, asking victim-blaming type of questions, because the NFL, as Tony Busby described it, felt like they had to investigate this case more than they actually wanted to identify the truth. At a certain point, Busby and the women stopped cooperating with the NFL because of the way the NFL was conducting their investigation. Ultimately, the NFL only got to talk to 11 victims and could only bring four of the 25 cases to arbiter Sue L. Robinson to prosecute and determine a suspension for Deshaun Watson. So the NFL was ruling on only four of the 25 cases because they only used the details from their own investigation. Back on August 2nd and June 27th, we detailed how they should not have done that. All the evidence was out there, but they were only using their in-house investigation, which according to Tony Busby, the NFL felt like they had to do instead of wanting to do. The NFL should have used all the evidence that was available, including depositions from Watson in each of the two dozen civil cases that had made it to depositions. And so they only had four cases with which to rule on. Judge Sue L. Robinson deemed Deshaun Watson to be not credible and deemed the accounts of the women and the lawyers to be more credible and ruled that this is an unprecedented behavior of sexual predatory conduct while only evaluating four of the cases and having 11 of them spoken to in the case of the NFL investigation. And then based on precedent, Sue L. Robinson ruled that while the NFL is trying to change their personal conduct policy to be more strict when related to sex-related crimes, that four cases based on precedent of non-violent sexual assault, which is a direct quote from Sue L. Robinson's 40-page release uh, statement, or I guess it was the findings of the investigation and her ruling, non-violent sexual assault on four cases was worth a six-game suspension based on precedent. And the precedent she was ruling on was in part Jameis Winston being suspended three games for groping an Uber driver and one case of nonviolent sexual assault as the language Sue L. Robinson uses a direct quote. It's not the language I would use. It's the language of a direct quote. One game or one case of nonviolent sexual assault was a three game suspension. Four cases will equal a six game suspension based on precedent. The NFL had the last call when it came to a suspension. They wanted to go for a year plus a significant punishment. The NFL Players Association, who is forced to defend their client, 
The NFL Players Association is in a position where they have to defend their client because that is their purpose. The NFL Players Association thought that no suspension was worthy because you look at the precedents set by Jerry Jones and Dan Snyder and Robert Kraft, who also engaged in what could be deemed nonviolent sexual assault. In the case of Dan Snyder, actual sexual assault. And there has been no accountability for those cases specifically. Therefore, the the Players Association was arguing there should be no punishment. The NFL ultimately rules that an 11-game suspension plus a fine ends up being the punishment. And if they had deemed that Deshaun Watson would be suspended a full season, his contract would have just been pushed back a year by the Cleveland Browns so that it wouldn't have started until 2022, or sorry, 2023. Instead, it starts in 2022, and he will only face about a $700,000 loss of earnings because he was only making $1 million against the cap because the Cleveland Browns negotiated that when they traded for him, knowing that he was likely to be suspended for possibly an entire season, if not more. And so ultimately, the 11-game suspension felt like it was not enough of a punishment for most people drawing a moral and ethical line around, as Sue L. Robinson concluded, unprecedented sexual assault and sexually predatory behavior engaged in by Watson. The settlement will represent financial damages. He paid a fine to the NFL of, I believe, $5 million and ended up having the 11-game suspension. Watson will come back in Week 12 and legally... He is pretty close to completed with his legal trial because when it comes to civil lawsuits, there's a statute of limitation of two years within the state of Texas. And so Deshaun Watson's first lawsuit came forward in March of 2021. We know that there have been accounts of Deshaun Watson engaging in sexually predatory behavior and sexual assault up until those lawsuits were filed. Jenny Vrentas uh, has the reporting on the timeline of how many cases there are, and we've read it a bunch of times before, and I'm happy to read again how many times Deshaun Watson engaged in a sexually predatory or sexual assault behavior. And um, the latest one that we know of as of right now is... March 5th of 2021. So up until March of 2023, assuming that Deshaun Watson has not sexually assaulted any more massage therapists in the time since the first lawsuit came public, assuming that's the case, March of 2023 will be the last time that a civil lawsuit will be able to be filed against Deshaun Watson. Again, as we mentioned last week, a woman who detailed Deshaun Watson's sexual engaging in sexually coercive activity in December of 2020 finally came forward without Rust, uh, without Tony Busby being the lawyer representing her in that case as the 26th woman to come forward. There may be more cases. It won't have the jarring number of the 24 because the statute of limitations shall pass. Two Civil investigations are still open, 23 have been settled, and the NFL has ruled on their punishment. So there is no real form of accountability that is still coming for Deshaun Watson that has not already been handed out. And before we move into some of the NFL aspects of this case, I do want to go back and read when 23 of the 26, I guess we could say now 24 of the 26 of these incidents have come to 
when they occurred because when you read the list out loud i found that it's an incredibly effective way to articulate what we are talking about here these this is the timeline of deshaun watson's behavior that we know of March 30th, 2020, at Plaintiff's Home in Texas. April 19th, 2020, at Houston Spa. May 28th, 2020, at Watson's Home in Houston. June 2nd, 2020, at a Houston Spa. June 7th, 2020, and August 24th, 2020, and in late August or early September 2020, at a New Use Salon Spa. June 2020 and August 17th, 2020, at a hotel and later spa in Houston. July 2020 at Plaintiff's Home in Houston. Plaintiff dropped, the, this is the person who dropped their lawsuit once it became public. July 2020 in Arizona. Four sessions between July 2020 and September 2020 in Texas. July 15th, 2020 at a home in Beverly Hills, California. August 2nd, 2020 at a hotel in Houston. August 5th, 2020 and August 9th, 2020 at Plaintiff's Apartment. August 28th, 2020, Houstonian Hotel Club and Spa. September 2nd, 2020 and November 17th, 2020 at Deshaun Watson home, multiple encounters between September 9th, 2020 and October 2020 at a Houston spa, September 24th, 2020 at a rented room in a Houston salon, two sessions between October 19th and around November 2nd, 2020 at the plaintiff's office in Houston, October 8th, 2020 at a Houston spa, October 19th, 2020 at a plaintiff's office in Houston, November 6th and November 10th, 2020 at plaintiff's mother's house in Texas, November 9th, 2020, at Plaintiff's Office in Houston, on or about December 18th, 2020, at the Houstonian. The newest lawsuit that was filed this week is sometime in 2020 of December. December 28th, 2020, at Houston Office Building, sometime in 2020. January 28th, January 21st, 2021, in Houston. March 5th, 2021, at a massage therapy business in Sandy Springs, Georgia. That is 24 of the 26 lawsuits that have been filed against Deshaun Watson and the timeline of these incidents spanning across an entire year of time from March 2020 through March of 2021. Again, we know that over the last three and a half years, Deshaun Watson has met with 67 massage therapists, according to Jenny Vrentas of Sports, Illustri- of Sports Illustrated and now the New York Times. And we know that Four other women have come forward and detailed their accounts to Jenny Vrentas, which makes it 30, of which we publicly know, in which Deshaun Watts engaged in sexually predatory behavior, sexual abuse, or sexual assault. So every time we talk about Deshaun Watson and what I've called over and over again a sports story of a generation— There will never be someone with this level of stature and fame and football ability standing accused of this level of unprecedented sexually predatory behavior and unprecedented crimes against women. And every time we talk about Deshaun Watson, I want to make sure that I give the proper context and proper empathy to the victims. When we were talking about the NFL's made-up legal system, that they created in the aftermath of their debacle with Ray Rice and sponsors threatening to pull money from the NFL and the league facing a crisis in which Roger Goodell became crime and punishment person. The Players Association granted him that power to be crime and punishment person. It led to some missteps such as Ezekiel Elliott getting a six-game suspension and 
through the history of the NFL personal conduct policy that's just kind of made up on the fly to protect the dollars. It is designed to protect the dollars and protect the people in power. Because prior to 2014, there was no personal conduct policy in the NFL. And within the eight years of experimenting with different levels of punishment for particular crimes and just trying to be a legal system that is entirely made up and trying to have some sort of legal, some sort of resemblance of control and exhibiting crime and punishment because that's what their sponsors dictate and what their customers dictate from the league as a whole. Now, I would recommend a different policy that totally restructures the way we think about the crime and punishment system within the NFL, although that is not the conversation at hand here. What is at hand is this specific case, where which is totally unprecedented in Deshaun Watson, which is a player who is accused of this level of sexual crimes and who stands to make the league hundreds of millions of dollars. No player as as much of a money-making vessel, which again, the NFL is a $100 billion corporation and each of their 32 teams are a corporation within the construct of a larger corporation. The NFL has showed time and time again their first priority is making money and their second priority is making money, and their third priority is making money, and protecting the dollars and protecting the people in power. Protect the power, protect the dollar. Those are the most important things to the NFL owners and the construct of this $100 billion corporation. When we talk about the National Football League and their their policy around this, and we talk about a player who is, before he is uh, before it comes to light that he has committed sexual crimes on an unprecedented scale for a f- professional athlete. Before that, he is one of the seven players that matter the most in the sport. When he gets traded from Houston to Cleveland, which, as you may recall, he had already demanded his trade from Houston because of how terrible Houston's organization is. Side note, Jack Easterby got fired yesterday. And if you know anything about our beliefs and, and knowledge about Jack Easterby, he's a team pastor who assumed power in a organization that has been torn down like none that has existed in the National Football League or any professional sport with the Houston Texans, going from being up 24-0 against the Kansas City Chiefs to then losing Deshaun Watson, J.J. Watt, and DeAndre Hopkins within a span of, a fee, of, of basically 12 months, and within 12 months completely falling apart as an organization, and they've gone like 9-30 and 30 since then. Jack Easterby got fired yesterday, which is a loss for white entitlement, and it's always good when white entitlement loses. That's a side note to the point where Houston Texans, uh, as we found out with Jenny Vrentas, are enabling Deshaun Watson's sexually predatory behavior, and when they trade him to Cleveland, it is the largest trade by far in the history of the National Football League. Three first-round picks and a $252 million fully guaranteed contract to a sexual predator, as Ashley Solis detailed before. We are talking about someone who is being rewarded for this behavior and being rewarded by being granted his release from Houston via trade and getting a fully guaranteed contract as a result. The optics of him being rewarded is something that does not serve the NFL's bottom line well, except for the fact that when he returns, he stands to make hundreds of millions of dollars. And so when we talk about Deshaun Watson's return and we talk about the money that is being made for the Cleveland Browns, the Haslam family, for Kevin Stefanski, for Andrew Barry, and for the league as a whole, 
it's important to talk about the first and most important context is that we should be withholding dollars from the Cleveland Browns. As a as an individual and as a group of football fans, specifically those in Cleveland, you should be withholding dollars from the organization if you believe that trading for a sexual predator is something that is morally and ethically wrong, so much so that you want to hold the organization accountable for this. There have been many conversations about Cleveland Browns fans leaving their fandom behind, not wanting any part of this team and having to cheer for a sexual predator coming out of their organization. And this has been a conversation that exists within the stupid sphere of sports radio, which is, what is my personal connection to this tragedy and to this person committing sexual crimes against women instead of empathizing with the women themselves and actually looking to correct that behavior on a broader scale. When we make a personal connection to it and the stupid connection is, I root for this football team, we have to make those moral and ethical decisions. And again, everyone draws the moral and ethical line in different places. When we were talking about the suspension for Deshaun Watson, the thing I have reiterated from the beginning and I reiterate now is that I hope that whatever the NFL decides with their made-up rules and their made-up personal conduct policy that didn't exist until 2014, I hope that it provides some sort of accountability and some measure of closure for just some of the women who are victims and some of the families of these victims in in this case. I hope it provides some level of closure because ultimately the NFL is never going to be able to hold their employee accountable when he stands to make them so much money. And when every system that has been refined and corrected over 25 years to protect the powerful people and protect the dollar are being implemented to where Deshaun Watson is rewarded by getting a fully guaranteed record-setting contract and gets to pick the team that he plays for and has a row of NFC South teams lining up to interview him for the right for Deshaun Watson to play for their team. Atlanta, Carolina, New Orleans all sat down for interviews where where they had to pitch Deshaun Watson on playing for their team, not the other way around. They were lining up to trade for Deshaun Watson. When we're talking about that level of power and that level of wealth and the systems in the NFL are designed to protect those who stand to make the league hundreds of millions of dollars over the next 15 years. When all the systems are set up to protect that person, there is no way they are going to reach an appropriate measure of accountability. And according to most... Deshaun Watson did not reach an appropriate measure of accountability with the original six-game suspension ruling and the ultimate 11-game suspension that came from the NFL's decision. And there was no way there was ever going to be an adequate level of punishment because all of the systems are designed to protect the money and protect the powerful person who stands to make the league a lot of money because he's one of the 8 to 15 players that actually changes the landscape of an organization just by virtue of him existing at that position and as the skill of player that Deshaun Watson has shown to be in the past. There is no measure of accountability that was going to be enough. And all I've said from the beginning is I hope that whatever they come to helps provide some measure of accountability and some level of justice and possible closure to the victims and their families of Deshaun Watson's sexual abuse. I don't know those people personally. I don't know if that suspension did enough to actually provide some level of closure. I know that that contract extension and allowing him to be traded couldn't have helped in any of those contexts. We've heard Ashley Solis talk about him being rewarded for his conduct and the the trauma that that reaggravates as they're continuously pursuing civil suits against him 
and the fact that any amount of money they receive will pale in comparison to the excess amount of money he stands to make and the NFL stands to make off of his labor over the next few years. And so I articulate to Cleveland, withholding the dollar is the most important. And there's nothing to really do now because the decision's already been made for the next four years. If you want to, for a, for a phase of your life, four to five years is not an insignificant period of people's lives. Most of us are incredibly different people than we were four to five years ago. I know I can speak for myself and say that. For the next four to five years, is this something you want to support and is this something that you want to give your dollars to as a corporation? That is a moral and ethical choice that individuals are making, and it's a personal connection to this story because they happen to root for the football team that Deshaun Watson got traded to. I know that I personally would want nothing to do with that situation, but it doesn't matter what I think. This is just the way that sports fans and Cleveland fans and all that shit that I talked about about your hometown and connections to this loving thing, it's hard to let that go because of what the emotions of the past and what you thought in the future were going to represent with this corporation that traffics in the emotions business. That's an incredibly difficult decision to make, and it's a moral and ethical stance that some people are willing to take, other people are not, and everyone's going to draw their moral and ethical lines in different places. Just as the length of suspension for Deshaun Watson was going to be determinant based on people's moral and ethical stance. Everyone was going to draw the line in different places on what sort of accountability should Deshaun Watson get. And the evidence of this case, without putting judgment or morals and ethics within to this, the morals and ethics that you should be applying are empathy to the victims first and foremost. And I mean, I say secondarily, but really tertiary or the fourth or fifth most important thing is getting to this football point. And we've done our best to articulate that on this. This is far from the most important case when it comes to the morals and ethics of this. The evidence suggests that a corporation that has spent 25 years protecting the dollar, protecting the power, and is now worth $100 billion. If you add up all 32 NFL teams, it's worth $100 billion. A $100 billion corporation that has spent decades protecting power and protecting the dollars was never going to find adequate accountability for the crimes of someone who stands to make them so much money in the future. And someone who himself stands to make so much money and has made a ton of money even throughout this process, $38 million in 2021 and guaranteed $230 million over the next five seasons. Someone who has made a quarter of a billion dollars guaranteed since his lawsuits have come to light and since his sexual abuse has come to light. There was never going to be a situation where a powerful person in a system that protects powerful people and protects the money was ever going to get adequate punishment. That's just what the evidence suggests. It's not saying that the NFL made the right or wrong decision with Sue L. Robinson. It means there was never a scenario where adequate punishment was going to be handed down because the corporation protects the dollars. This is a clip from Ashley Solis from the May edition of Real Sports with Bryant Gumble on HBO. Also note that a Soledad O'Brien is the female reporter who is asking the questions back and forth with Ashley. First, she says, Watson refused the towel she had provided to cover him, insisting on using what she describes as a tiny hand towel instead. Then, after the session began, she says Watson attempted to bare his naked body. He ends up exposing himself 
And I hurried up and covered him with the towel. And he said, oh, you don't have to worry about the towel. And I said, yes, I do. So then what happened? He requested that I work on his abdomen. But the moment I went above his navel, he told me he didn't want me to work there. He wanted me to work lower. He just kept directing me to go lower and don't be scared. You, you can go in there. Like, and I just started really freezing up at this point. Can you explain that? Like a wave just took over my body. I felt so hot. I was sweating. Um, it was getting more and more clear that this is not what I signed up for. This is not what I thought the session was going to be. And so as I'm working, he deliberately grabs himself and put his penis on my hand. And I pulled my hand away instantly and I started crying. And I told him that I'm done. I don't want to do this anymore. So Lee says she waited for Watson to leave. But before he did, she says he delivered a parting message. He just said, I know you have a career to protect and I know you don't want anyone messing with it, just like I don't want anyone messing with mine. That's when I got really scared. Why? Because that sounded like a threat to me. Again, that audio is courtesy of Real Sports with Bryant Gumble on HBO. This was May's episode of that show. And so this is another detailed account. Kyla Hayes is another person who went on that show and talked about her account with Deshaun Watson. There have been dozens of depositions which they break down in that show and with the reporting from Jenny Vrentas back on June 8th with the New York Times, which is the most extensive report that's come out thus far on Deshaun Watson's case. And so there, uh, I just want to read the first part of that real quick. The accusations have been frequent and startling. More than two dozen women have said the football star Deshaun Watson harassed or assaulted them during massage appointments that Watson and his lawyers insisted were innocuous. Two grand juries in Texas this year declined to charge him criminally and, while the NFL considers whether to discipline him, has gotten another job signing a five-year, $230 million fully guaranteed contract to play quarterback for the Cleveland Browns. It is time, Watson and his representatives say, for everyone to move on, yet a New York Times examination of records, including depositions and evidence for the civil lawsuits, as well as interviews of some of the women, show that Watson engaged in more questionable behavior than previously known. The Times review also showed that Watson's conduct was enabled, knowingly or not, by the team he played for at the time, the Houston Texans, which provided the venue Watson used for some of his appointments. A team representative also furnished him with a non-disclosure agreement after a woman who is now suing him threatened online to expose his behavior. Watson has said publicly that he hired about 40 different therapists across his five seasons in Houston, but the Times reporting found that he booked appointments with at least 66 different women in just the 17 months from fall of 2019, which, side note, is when the uh, incident with Mary happened that was detailed by Jenny in 2021, from fall of 2019 through spring 2021. A few of these additional women, speaking publicly for the first time, described experiences that undercut Watson's insistence that he was only seeking professional massage therapy. One woman who did not sue Watson or complain to the police told the Times that he was persistent in his request for sexual acts during their massage, including begging her to put her mouth on his penis. Quote, I specifically had to say, no, I can't do that. 
said the woman, who spoke on the condition of anonymity to protect her family's privacy. And that's when I went into asking him, what is it like being famous? Like, what's going on? You're about to mess up everything. End quote. So, also in this reporting, and again, we go through the whole report on the June 8th podcast that we did, Watson had... Uh, the Times reporting found that he had booked appointments with at least 66 different women in 17 months from fall 2019 to spring 2021. And I want to reiterate the timeline of events of the women who are filing lawsuits against Deshaun Watson. Now, these are 23 of the 25 cases that were brought against Deshaun Watson. And again, reminder, this doesn't include Mary, who was in the fall of 2019, which means that Watson was still booking appointments with massage therapists through Instagram and engaging in sexually predatory behavior before this timeline of events because these are only the people who are filing lawsuits against Deshaun Watson. Beginning March 30th, 2020 at the plaintiff's home in Texas. April 19th, 2020 at a Houston spa. May 28th, 2020, Watson's home in Houston. June 2nd, 2020, Houston Spa. Five days later, June 7th, 2020, and August 24th, 2020, and in late August or early September 2020, at New You Salon Spa. June 2020 and August 17th, 2020, at a hotel and later spa in Houston. July 2020, Plaintiff's Home in Houston. July 2020, in Arizona. Four sessions between July 2020 and September 2020 in Texas. July 15th, 2020, at, a, at Plaintiff's Home in Beverly Hills, California. August 2nd, 2020, Hotel in Houston. August 5th, 2020, and August 9th, 2020, at Plaintiff's Apartment. August 28th, 2020, at the Houstonian Hotel Club and Spa. This would be the ninth account of Deshaun Watson engaging with someone during the time frame of July and August. September 2nd, 2020, and November 17th, 2020, at Watson's house. Multiple encounters between September 9th and October 2020 at a Houston spa. September 24th, 2020, at a rented room in a Houston salon. Two sessions, October 19th and November 2nd, 2020, at Plaintiff's office in Houston. October 18th, 2020, at a Houston spa. October 19th, 2020, at Plaintiff's office in Houston. November 6th and 10th, 2020, at Plaintiff's mother's house in Texas. November 9th, 2020, at Plaintiff's office in Houston. December 28th, 2020, at a Houston office building. Sometime in 2020. January 21st, 2021, in Houston. And March 5th, 2021, at a massage therapy business in Sandy Springs, Georgia. Across 23 of the 25 women who pursued lawsuits against Watson, which again does not include the additional five women who sued the Houston Texans, and the cases which we've talked about of people who didn't bring accusations to court against Watson, but did in reporting by Ginny Vrentas in Sports Illustrated and in the New York Times, this adds up to at least 34 different incidents in which Deshaun Watson engaged in sexually predatory behavior. A reminder, this only is based on the 23, 23 of the 25 lawsuits that were filed against Deshaun Watson. That's 34 incidents across a span of 13 months in which Deshaun Watson engaged in such sexually predatory 
behavior. And of course, we know that going back to fall of 2019, that Deshaun Watson also engaged in sexually predatory behavior from the story told by Mary in Sports Illustrated. What we've been describing for the last 20 minutes is the sexually predatory behavior that Deshaun Watson has been engaging in for 17 months that we know of from reporting that's been done by credible news outlets and brave women who have come forward to pursue lawsuits against Watson and get some form of accountability for their actions. Just because an accountability and a punishment has been handed down does not mean that we have to stop being moral and ethical about this case and doesn't mean that there still won't be pain for these victims and still won't be very, very difficult emotional trauma that these people will have to deal with, especially as they enter a professional setting in which they still remain vulnerable. Despite the fact that they've brought lawsuits against a powerful person, that's not enough to engage in meaningful change around protecting women in professional settings and protecting women within the confines of corporate culture. And John Amici, who I read a lot of his stuff, and, and he's a former professional basketball player turned clinical psychologist in England, and he brings up this great point that I use not as a blanket statement, but just as a good point of reference when talking about culture. Organizational culture is the worst behavior that will be tolerated within your organization. Culture is the worst behavior that will be tolerated within your organization. And corporate culture for years has allowed men to engage in predatory behavior towards women because women in a corporate culture and women within a corporate workforce have not been seen with the same level of respect professionally as men have been because of misogyny and gender roles of the 18th, 19th, and 20th century, the fight for women's rights, which again, women have only had the right to vote for about 100 years now, and women have this, I mean, the pay gap still exists for women, and Women just are not treated well within the corporate culture and within society at large. We've decided that engaging in predatory behavior towards women is at the very least acceptable within the corporate culture or that the systems of accountability for these, uh, whether it be the legal system or whether it be within our organizations, the systems of accountability are not strong enough to deter the behavior at a level that, say, other sorts of crimes are tolerated with. And the NFL has come out and decided that we are going to allow Deshaun Watson to come back this season, and while we are making improvements to this policy, it's not going to be perfect. And this is a, just a broader example of corporate culture. And so when it comes to morals and ethics around this case, everyone draws their own moral and ethical line within different places. Everyone has their own level of morals and ethics with which they care about. And regardless of what Deshaun Watson's suspension was going to be, you are going to have some people who argue that the case was too soft a suspension and some who argue that it was too strong a suspension because it's an arbitrary scale. Now, we should listen to the people who are actually in the minority in this case and people who are victims of this type of behavior when deciding what the type of punishment should be. However, within the corporate culture, these things are collectively bargained and we as a society just don't care about the opinions of women a lot of the times. And it's really disheartening. We've talked about this a lot with Morgan from Australia recently about how even when gains are made, 
around women's rights and women within the corporate workforce. Like I talk about the, the when equal pay was accomplished for the women's soccer team in the United States, even my cynical brain kicked in. It's like, it's probably not as good as it seems because gains for women's rights seem to come so exponentially slowly because male power and male dominated industries still reign supreme in the 21st century capitalistic society of America. And so the white male, I'm specifically male, but additionally white male power structures continue to enable and protect this behavior. And it's important to talk about male privilege and male power structures here because the NFL is a sport governed by white people that has a workforce that is predominantly black. And all across the board, the NFL has decided that we are not going to commit to fundamental reform at a fast enough pace to match with the rest of corporate culture in America. Corporate culture in America is still ahead of the NFL when it comes to protecting women and creating work environments in which women are safe and protected and secure and can engage in their work without being predated on and are shown the level of respect that they deserve within the constructs of the corporate culture. And so morally and ethically, everyone is going to draw their bar in different places about when you engage in this serial sexually predatory behavior, what is the accountability? Because there's never going to be a case exactly like Deshaun Watson's again. And so from this point forward, this is still where morals and ethics play a role. Because in order to create change... And in order to protect women, we have to continue to talk about this case. And not everyone cares about this. Male privilege gives people the ability to not care about the well-being of women in a way that constitutes meaningful change. And we'll talk about this again when we come back around uh, at the very end of the show. I have a conclusion to this, uh, to this story that builds off of this point. What I want to move into quickly as we talk about morals and ethics and the real human cases about this is we've talked about the legal side, we've talked about the moral ethical side, now let's bring the NFL into this case. And the biggest breakdown we've done around the NFL was the August 2nd podcast following the six-game ruling by Sue L. Robinson. And the thing that's been reiterated from the start is the NFL can let Deshaun Watson get away with this. They can let the Cleveland Browns get away with this, and they can let Deshaun Watson get away with this if they so choose. And the NFL ultimately came to a conclusion of we're going to offer an 11-game suspension, which and the fine is the most important part because the Browns set up a contract in which if Watson is suspended for the entire season, he won't lose a single cent. And Even if he's suspended for part of a season, he only makes a million dollars against the cap on that first season. So Deshaun Watson was always going to collect all of his money, regardless of what the suspension was going to be, which again is the largest contract in the history of the NFL by a significant margin. And the Cleveland Browns, enabling Deshaun Watson's behavior by lying in press releases, protecting him at every turn, including avoiding press conference interviews. They have enabled that behavior and created what might, what probably already existed, but they have now firmly established a toxic culture within the Cleveland Browns because this sort of behavior is not only encouraged or is not only enabled, 
Remember the John Amici point I said about culture is the worst behavior that's tolerated within your organization? Browns are not only tolerating it, they are rewarding it. Thus, toxic culture within the Cleveland Browns. And you've seen responses by Cleveland Browns fans and people within the organization and those associated with the team that have been negative and pushed back against that. It's not to say that everyone is just moving along and saying that this is okay. It's the culture that exists for the Cleveland Browns. They are a billion-dollar corporation, one-thirty-second of an already existing billion-dollar, I guess a hundred-billion-dollar corporation that is the NFL. And so within the NFL, they did the best they could in trying to exploit their system to give a fair punishment to Deshaun Watson. And no matter what the case was, this was going to be a case of you come to what might be the right result through all of the wrong reasons. The base, Additionally to the humanizing cases that we brought up from the New York Times and Sports Illustrated and Real Sports with Brian Gumbel and the timeline of events uh, of the 34 behaviors from 23 of the 25 lawsuits, the 34 sexually predatory acts and sexual assaults that Deshaun Watson engaged in during the, the was it, 13-month period we outlined. In addition to that, Sue L. Robinson, the arbiter for the NFL, listed in her report that Deshaun Watson sexually assaulted four women. The reason he got six games is that that was the precedent that had been set in the past by the NFL. The NFL had given a, a, a three-game suspension to Jameis Winston for one sexual assault when he sexually assaulted an Uber driver, and he got a three-game suspension from that. There was no significant... Uh, she described it as a significant like ruling to the uh, to the players association that they were going to change the personal conduct policy and she said in her statement that while the NFL is a forward facing organization they are not exactly a forward thinking one and they are very reactionary she mentioned the Ray Rice suspension and how they double suspended Ray Rice in violation of the collective bargaining agreement and how the NFL was reacting to public backlash in trying to offer Deshaun Watson a year-long suspension, possibly an indefinite suspension, which is what the NFL was arguing for in their arbitration. The NFL Players Association was arguing for no suspension because you're not punishing Dan Snyder, you're not punishing Jerry Jones, you're not punishing Robert Kraft for similar poor behaviors against women, even though you're supposed to hold owners to a higher standard than the players, which... Their argument is wrong. I want to point that forward. The NFL Players Association has to make that argument because they defend Deshaun Watson and Deshaun Watson is a union representative. They have to make that argument. Their argument is two wrongs make a right. They know it's flawed. They knew he was going to be suspended. It's the argument they had to make. The NFL argument was indefinite suspension. We don't want to deal with this strong punishment coming down so that we can look like the law and order league, just like baseball did when they suspended Trevor Bauer for two years for sexually assaulting a woman twice. And according to the Washington Post, two women. And they ended up coming up with a six-game suspension because and this is the really gross part about this, if Jameis Winston gets a three-game suspension for sexually assaulting one woman, four sexual assaults is a six-game suspension. And the NFL came back and argued in arbitration that four cases, because again, uh, I forgot to mention this, but we mentioned it in the August 2nd case and the, uh, the, the June 27th podcast that we made 
the NFL could only use findings from their own investigation in the Sue L. Robinson arbitration hearing, which is what they collectively bargained. I think it's flawed because the court system already did your investigating for you. Journalism outlets have done the reporting for you. Use their information in deciding your punishment. Ultimately, because the NFL, according to Tony Busby and Ashley Solis, was doing the investigation because they had to and were victim-blaming in their interview process, they stopped cooperating with the NFL. Therefore, the NFL only had 10 interviews to work on and only four cases of sexual assault that could be brought to Sue L. Robinson. And Sue L. Robinson decided all four of them, Deshaun Watson committed these acts, he was lying under, uh, he was lying in testimony to Sue L. Robinson, he was not credible, the women were credible, four cases of sexual assault confirmed by Sue L. Robinson. And again, Sue L. Robinson is not a legal entity, she just is a former judge hired by the NFL to be an arbitrator, hired by the NFL and the NFL Players Association to be an independent arbiter. And so she ruled four sexual assaults as a six-game suspension based on the personal conduct policy because a one-game, uh, a one-sexual assault was a three-game suspension. And the NFL came back and said four sexual assaults equals 12-game suspension, plus we're going to negotiate a gigantic fine. And that was so that they could avoid a lawsuit from the Players Association and get a punishment that also included a fine so that they could keep the Browns and Deshaun Watson at least a little bit accountable for their behavior. In that the fi- the Browns enabled Deshaun Watson by giving him a contract that if he had been suspended for a full season would have just pushed the contract back a year so he would have been suspended zero dollars. He would have lost zero dollars and instead he'll only lose seven hundred thousand dollars with the 11 game suspension and the $5 million fine is just a way to at least have some form of accountability financially as a punishment instead of just losing games and not paying any sort of financial penalty. This is the NFL case around this. The NFL could have let Deshaun Watson get away with it, and they did, after a long process, an okay job. And the reason I say an okay job is not for any moral or ethical point. It's that this is progress. It doesn't look like progress because it's not as much progress as we thought there would be. In 2009, Ben Roethlisberger raped a woman and it was a very high profile case and he got a six game suspension from the National Football League. I bring this up because it's the only high-profile case that closely reflects what happened with Deshaun Watson. Now, with Deshaun Watson, we're not talking about rape. In this case, we are talking about 34 different events of sexual harassment and sexual assault, which is really difficult to break down because it's such an unprecedented situation from any athlete, nonetheless an athlete who is as public-facing as Deshaun Watson, one of the players who will move a billion dollars in revenue for the NFL over the next 15 years. Just as Ben Roethlisberger did, not in the case of a billion dollars, Ben Roethlisberger moved hundreds of million dollars in revenue for the National Football League following his six-game suspension for raping a woman back in 2009. And 13 years later, Deshaun Watson got an 11-game suspension and a $5 million fine 
for sexually harassing and sexually assaulting 25, well, at least we know of 30 different women during his massage therapy sessions. And that doesn't look like progress, and it is slight progress. The amount of public backlash that has come to the Cleveland Browns as a result of this is a form of progress that did not exist in 2009. And the world has changed a lot in regards to the way we talk about women in the workforce and sexual assault and sexual harassment, especially men talking about this and being not just allies, but people who are also fighting against misogyny and fighting against sexual harassment of women, not just in the workplace, but in society at large. The Me Too movement had a lot to do with progress and how we talk about these issues and how we become informed about the trauma and effects that this has on women. Because women are taking the microphone and they are taking the power back from men in some small capacity. It is an infinite goal to pursue. Women being treated equally to men within society. It is not there. We will never reach that point in our lifetime, and many of us will die trying, trying to pursue that goal. Most people will be women. I find it incredibly important for people in the majority, in this case men and biological males, to voice the viewpoint of the minority, which in this case is the rights of biological females and people who are LGBTQ+, people who are cisgender, advocating for the rights of those who are not cisgender. And so this is a case in which we will be pursuing this fight for women's rights for years and years and years. And this is at least some level of progress in an, a, a generational case of sexual harassment and sexual assault. Again, I've said this over and over when talking about this story. You have one of the six most important football players in the world accused of unprecedented levels of sexually predatory behavior from an athlete. This is a sports story for a generation. We will not see a case like this for a long, long time. The last case we have to work on with this is Ben Roethlisberger and Kobe Bryant in 2004. And Kobe Bryant gets to become a legend and a hero in Los Angeles. Ben Roethlisberger gets to become a hero in Pittsburgh. He'll have his jersey retired and he will be forever selling books and signing jerseys and doing and he'll get to have a hall of fame speech in which he'll be applauded and cheered and that is something that won't happen for Deshaun Watson for a long time especially as he continues to deny allegations and that's part of what progress looks like it's not as fast of progress as i would like it's not as fast of progress as women deserve. And it's also progress nonetheless. This is a sports story for a generation. And our behavior from this point forward will help to shape the culture of the next generation. That's why talking about the morals and ethics and the humanizing story about this will continue to be important. Because I see a lot of men either with, with major media outlets or on social media, engaging in a dialogue around this case, and a lot of men talking about how wrong this is, and at the same time accepting it as a reality. 
And the next step for people who are allies is to then work to improve women's rights, to actively sacrifice for the good of promoting women to positions of power and promoting women in ways that have not existed in society for our entire lifetimes and probably will not exist in a perfect form for my entire lifetime. I got a hundred years left of life and I will probably not live to see a day in which women achieve some standard of equal rights equivalent to men within the corporate workforce, within economics, within politics, and within culture. I will probably not live to see that day. And at the same time, it's a cause that is compelling to myself and many other people to fight against that case. It's why I come on this platform and I talk about this Deshaun Watson case. Many of these thoughts are informed by the Deshaun Watson case, is actively fighting to improve the position and power of women within culture, economics, politics, and society at large. And this is a sports story of a generation. What's going to happen when the next generation has a story like this? Behavior from this point forward will help to shape the culture of what the next generation is going to look like. And people who are male who are allies in this case and believe Deshaun Watson didn't face a harsh enough punishment, what are we going to do to ensure that this behavior is not enabled again? Are you going to stop spending money with the NFL? Because the NFL is still governed by the dollar. Corporations are still motivated first and foremost by the dollar and shareholder value. So your money and changing your behavior on an individual level is going to help reinforce that there is not an acceptable form of behavior here and you want to change the corporate culture. Money is a mover to help instigate change. Pressure and shame of corporations economically and culturally is going to help drive change. It may not move as fast as we'd like and it's not going to move as fast as women deserve. At the same time, you have to keep fighting to achieve some level of progress so that that way when we look back a generation from now when the next story like this inevitably happens we will have a better response for it and we will create better systems of accountability for people in power and when we look back 10 years from now from this case we will see a world that is different than the one that exists now that's the next step around this case, and it's why this case is not over with Deshaun Watson, even though there will be no more form of accountability for Deshaun Watson. And NFL media, ESPN, propaganda outlets around the NFL will work hard to not only make this story go away, and the Cleveland Browns will want you to continue to spend money so that five years from now you're buying Deshaun Watson jerseys, even as that is going to happen. Pushing back against that narrative and pushing back against that culture, even if you continue to watch the NFL, even if you continue to spend money on the NFL, little behaviors like that will help to instigate change, especially for men, because male privilege is what helps to enable this. Saying that you acknowledge that it's wrong and that possibly Deshaun Watson did not get a harsh enough suspension, that is the bare minimum because you're not being antagonistic. The next step is to work to help instigate change. The next step is to change your behaviors and put pressure economically on corporations in order to change behavior. What happens when the next generation comes along and we have the next sports story of a generation? 
The next generation might be five years from now. I argue that in sports and in life, generations are about every five years because it's hard for me to relate to someone who's 15 years old. And it's hard for me to relate to someone who's 28 years old. However, we're all part of the same generation. So I think generations last smaller. What's going to happen five years from now when the next case like this comes along? When we have to talk about sexual assault and sexual harassment of women in professional settings and within corporate cultures again? Are we going to have achieved progress from this case? Are we going to have learned things from the Deshaun Watson case as male sports fans? Are we going to change our behavior? Are we going to hold systems of power accountable in ways that maybe we wanted to with Deshaun Watson and also weren't able to? What is progress going to look like? And so this leads into the conversation about what happens when Deshaun Watson returns. Because if proper accountability has not been met, if there is no scenario where Deshaun Watson is going to face proper accountability for his sexual crimes and his sexual abuse and his sexual assault, if there is no circumstance in which the proper accountability is ever going to be reached for, as I've talked about before, an unprecedented level of star player, one of the 15 players who adds value to your team just by being there and stands to make the NFL hundreds of millions of dollars over the next 15 years of his career. If that person is never going to face adequate accountability for his actions and is going to be protected within the construct, how do we talk about that person within the construct of football? And again, this is like the sixth most important thing that comes up around this case. It's important to finally talk about because we are coming to a place in which Deshaun Watson is about to return within the next four to five weeks. How do we talk about this person within that context? I've waited 40 minutes to get to this point by laying out all of the important moral and ethical points, the legal standpoints, all of the things that are more important to this case than talking about how do we reintegrate Deshaun Watson by force when we feel that there is no proper measure of accountability and when evidence suggests that there is no proper accountability that could have possibly been handed down for the types of crimes that we are talking about. When the evidence suggests that, how do we reintegrate someone who hasn't faced proper accountability for his actions? And the first and foremost important thing, which we've talked about before, withhold the dollars. At this point, the dollars have already been handed out. It's fully guaranteed. There is no more way to withhold the dollars other than to say, if a situation like this happens in the future, I will not be supportive of the NFL or supportive of the Cleveland Browns, specifically. Now, that doesn't mean a full boycott, perhaps. Perhaps you draw the moral and ethical line in different places. Maybe you don't buy that extra ticket. Maybe you don't buy that NFL Sunday ticket package. Maybe you don't pay for $4.99 a month of NFL+. Plus. I know personally for myself, I've reached a place where only the basic YouTube TV package is the only thing I'm purchasing from the NFL. That's the only way I'm financially supporting the NFL is by watching the games. Now, unfortunately, that's where 60 to 70 percent of NFL football related revenue comes from. Now, the reason it's a hundred billion dollar organization is because the reason the NFL is a hundred billion dollar corporation is because of the real estate and the plots of land that these stadiums are on. That's worth billions of dollars. But in terms of NFL-generated revenue, 
watching the games does make up a good portion. Those television contracts make up a good portion of their revenue in the first place. So the bare minimum I can offer is watching the league financially. I also have a platform, and it's a very small platform, obviously. It's, it's you know, 200, 300 people, a podcast that generates enough money to get tickets to watch Arizona and Utah next month. For people who have media outlets and people who have media power to influence culture, shall we say, power to influence the subcultures of football, do not engage in Cleveland Browns talk. Do not engage in Deshaun Watson football talk. This is a compromising position if you work for an NFL-affiliated partner. So say ESPN, NFL Network. NBC has a little more leeway in content, but they are an NFL partner. Amazon. If you're consuming through CBS or Fox, these are league partners and they are compromised in what they can and cannot talk about. But that's NFL propaganda that you're getting in a lot of these cases. And the thing that I've said for years I, I find so disheartening about football specifically is that so much of the media content around football is through the prism of NFL-owned media outlets, which, by the way, is done intentionally by the NFL. The NFL with ESPN and NFL Network, which are the predominant reporters when it comes to, like, Adam Schefter breaking news, Tom Pelissero, Ian Rappaport, the people that we focus on the most in the sport happen to work for the league or work in partnership with the league. And that's just the money being able to control the narrative and being able to control the content that's being discussed on the air for a good portion of it. And so if you work for a league media partner, there's obviously a compromise and you pick and choose your battles. And I totally understand the conflicts of interest and compromises that have to be made there. For people who don't work for media outlets, don't talk about the Cleveland Browns. Don't talk about Deshaun Watson. If you're going to talk about it, do it through a long-form podcast like we're doing now. That's what I've found is the best way to hold these people accountable. Because if you normalize, the NFL is going to do their best to normalize conversation around Deshaun Watson. It might take years, and it's going to take people within the construct of these paradigms pushing back against the NFL in order to substantiate real meaningful change. But that's just because ESPN, NFL Network, NBC, CBS, Fox... They have so much of a grip on the NFL media landscape and influencing the culture of football. They have such a significant influence specifically in that sport that it's difficult to not talk about football when you're being paid to talk about football by the NFL. It's hard to, within the construct of the NFL is signing your paychecks, to say, Let's talk about sexual crimes that a star quarterback is committing. Let's talk about how the NFL has not held him properly accountable because of the systems that they've created that protect power and protect money. It happens. It happens when a new lawsuit gets filed against Deshaun Watson. It happens when a Dan Snyder report comes out, and then it cycles through the news story. It happens with Deshaun Watson. We talk about it for a week. We talk about it for two days. We have a verdict come down, six games, okay, let's debate, too, too much, too lenient. Goes to 11 games, okay, let's talk about the crimes, let's talk about the humanizing aspects of this, 
and then let's move on. We did it on this show. We talked about it June 8th, June 22nd, June 27th, August 2nd, August 19th, and then haven't talked about it for two months. Today's October 18th. We went eight weeks without talking about this case. And there weren't new developments that we could add layers to. The new development that's coming up, and I guarantee you in four weeks, you're going to hear conversation shift back to this, is Deshaun Watson is playing football again. Let's talk about it. For that week that he returns, let's talk about it. For the two days before he returns, let's talk about it, but let's not talk about it on the broadcast. Only within the confines of football can NFL media outlets talk about Deshaun Watson. And not engaging in not just Deshaun Watson talk, but holding Cleveland accountable by not talking about the Browns and not giving them a platform is a great way to hold them accountable because suffocating their access and suffocating their exposure culturally and with media coverage is a great way to hold them accountable for their actions. Intentionally withholding conversation about the Cleveland football team and intentionally withholding conversation about Deshaun Watson's football ability is a great measure of accountability. And this is the same thing I would articulate when it comes to talking about Kanye West and talking about Antonio Brown. Don't give them a platform. Don't talk about them. Acknowledge the news. Acknowledge when Kanye West says anti-Semitic comments. Acknowledge those points. Have discourse about anti-Semitism. Don't continue to give them a platform. And if people will continue to give them a platform, don't retweet that. Don't give it life and let it continue to fester. When Antonio Brown tweets something inflammatory, don't inflame it. If you let it die and you take away the platform, the flame will not grow. And the same thing exists with Cleveland. The the larger the flame grows, the more that it's going to, I mean, I don't want to say burn stuff down, but it's going to burn away the conversation about Deshaun Watson's sexual abuse and ultimately let them get away with the power structures that they've put in place. And again, there are so few measures of accountability because we're talking about a $100 billion corporation. And even Deshaun Watson's behavior is not enough to get football fans at large so disgusted that they will give up not just working for this sport, but watching the sport and consuming it. I know myself, I'm working to have a more healthy relationship with football. Uh, Mike Golick Jr. on Twitter posed the question, what would it take at this point for you to quit football? And for me, I'm working to not quit football, but slowly but steadily just consume less of football. Working in sports is the thing that I'm fascinated in, and working in football is something that is incredibly fascinating, and I'm great at doing analysis now. I'm great at doing football analysis. The, the X's and O's breakdown I did on Monday, I'm super proud of that, and I'm great at, dis- at dissecting macro-level views of the sport at large. And I've gotten great at that because I've committed hundreds of hours to that craft because of my interest in making sports my profession. And I don't think that watching as much football as I do is something that I feel makes me a better person. And talking about the Cleveland Browns at this point is not necessarily a moral or ethical stand for myself. It just feels like the right thing to do. And so you won't hear me talking about the Cleveland Browns on any sort of football context. And I know we talked about this with DSD. I know that's a little unfair to Miles Garrett, Nick Chubb, and those Cleveland Browns players. And at the same time, it's the right thing to do. And not giving them a platform is the best way to hold someone accountable when you have that media position. Not talking about the football team, 
not talking about the results. We haven't talked about a Cleveland Browns game once this year, and we'll not talk about a Cleveland Browns game the rest of the season, because that's some measure of accountability that, again, won't actually make a meaningful impact. It just feels like the right thing to do. And if 10, 20, 30, 40 media outlets larger than myself followed up on this, it would be an incredibly healthy way to hold the Cleveland Browns accountable, because if you remove their access it's a measure of accountability that will ultimately impact the bottom line because shame can still govern decisions. If there are accountable if there's accountability for actions, shame and accountability are effective measures. And so at this point it it falls on us to be the accountability systems. I heard a great quote about this one time where we're always looking to other people to be accountability systems. We look to legal systems to take the burden of accountability out of our hands. Uh, we look to institutions to help give us solutions. We look to governments. uh, We look to politicians. We look to organizations to help create measures of accountability and help take moral and ethical decisions out of our hands. And on this one, the systems of accountability have failed the victims of Deshaun Watson. And it was impossible for them to ever get adequate, adequate support and adequate justice for and adequate accountability for the sexual crimes that Deshaun Watson committed because all of the systems and institutions are either not equipped to create accountability in sexual crimes or have protected the people in power like the NFL. And again, this is a failure of institutions. Systemic reform is necessary around issues related to women and issues related to crimes against women and crimes. I mean, again, we're talking about this within heteronormative relationships, crimes of sexual abuse and crimes uh, of domestic assault. These types of issues need massive reform. And, and again, I'm talking about predominantly men and women. Of course, it can be woman abusing a man. It can be a man abusing a man. It can be a woman abusing a, a woman and sexually assaulting a woman. These cases need massive reform. This is a systemic problem, and institutions have failed to create proper accountability measures. So the best thing we can do now is just try and create our own accountability measures that are the right thing to do. And the right thing to do around the Cleveland Browns for something as heinous as giving Deshaun Watson, a sexual predator, $230 million fully guaranteed, having him interview you for the right to go to your team, enabling him, protecting him, and rewarding him with a gigantic contract, the best thing to do is to not acknowledge your organization, to not give you the platform, and to not discuss your team. And if you're a league partner, that's incredibly difficult to do, and I understand the conflicts because the league is loaning you their platform on ESPN, on NFL Network, on CBS, on NBC. I understand how difficult that is. For everyone else, there is not an excuse. Do not give the Cleveland Browns a platform, and do not allow them to normalize the fact that Deshaun Watson is about to play football within the next four weeks. And you're going to see this happen on major media outlets over the next few weeks. The conversation is going to be about Deshaun Watson's return and we're only going to talk about it within the four weeks of his return and or sorry within the week of his return four weeks from now and that's why I so desperately wanted to talk about this within the middle of the busiest week of the sports year and weeks before Deshaun Watson returns because I want to put this out here do not talk about the Cleveland Browns do not talk about them within the context of football do not talk about them within the context of Deshaun Watson and do not talk about them about when it comes to whether or not they are a better team with or without him. Do not talk about Cleveland. And if you're going to talk about Cleveland, 
It should be with layering all the context and nuance that we discussed here on this podcast, like we discussed on June 8th, June 22nd, June 27th, August 2nd, and August 19th. That is the way that should be approached when talking about this case, and it's incredibly important to talk about this weeks in advance before Deshaun Watson returns, because we know how media outlets are going to respond. As much as this is an unprecedented case of sexual abuse and sexual assault, there's a playbook that has been followed for decades. And again, the NFL loans these people a platform and the playbook is protect the dollars. And if we're going to loan people a platform, there are certain taboo issues that are either expressly delivered or kind of wink, wink, unspoken, decided that we're not going to talk about this. And we t- we've talked about this with Morgan from Australia, listening to Mina Kimes talk about how she was wrestling morally and ethically with, I'm going to be asked to seriously talk about Deshaun Watson, the football player, and I can't do that. And using her podcast as a, a quiet, like without having the major, fl- she's she's a commenter for NFL Live, which is the flagship ESPN program for the NFL. If having to seriously talk about Deshaun Watson within that context is something that on a major platform is something she has to do. That's an incredibly difficult moral and ethical decision, and it's not, I understand not deciding that this is something that you're willing to risk your career on. That's incredibly difficult stance and an incredibly courageous stance to stand on. It's it's incredible, it's an unfair position to put anyone in in that spot, and the NFL has loaned you this platform, and so there are certain rules that are either expressly prohibited, are expressly disclosed, or are, are unspokenly understood about what you are going to talk about on NFL bot airwaves. And that's propaganda, and I hate that NFL propaganda now dictates a large part of the the media culture around football, but that's what football has invested billions of dollars into. You're talking about infinite resources with the media partners who need the relationship with the NFL. It's a terrible situation, and it's ultimately just like propaganda and capitalism mixed together into one confluence of events. For anyone who's not an NFL media partner, do not engage in conversation around Deshaun Watson, and do not engage in conversation around the Cleveland Browns as a football team. Talk about this in a way that empathizes with victims, and talk about it in a way that articulates the crimes that Deshaun Watson has committed articulately, and applies the nuance that we have done 